too many guys think I'm a concept or I complete them or I'm gonna make them alive. But I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. I remember that speech really well. I had you pegged, didn't I? Yeah, the whole human race pegged. Hmm, probably. I still thought you were gonna save my life. Even after that. different if we could just give it another go round remember me try your best maybe we can Hello there, and welcome to Pivotal Film. I'm Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio. And this is the final countdown. This is the top five, Tom. This feels the different. The second to last episode that we'll ever do of this podcast, uh, where we have both movies in one episode, because our top three will be uh, separated. So, you know. Which feels will, right. Feels we'll have, right. We'll have weeks there where we don't have to watch like a thousand movies at once. Um... That'll be that'll be very nice. Um, it'll be especially nice because there. I think in the spring there'll be a break, kind of like last year, where they're not just like shoving movies down our throat from every direction, and they're just gonna they'll wait and see what happens with the Except theaters with this Brothers. COVID. And well, they they've already assigned those things dates. Speaking of this, do I don't have, have to feel. Do it. we have to watch this Raya movie? What? Do we have to watch this Raya movie? Raya and the whatever dragon. Oh, I'll probably I'll give you thirty bucks. We'll split it and evenly if you want. Only to because it. my kids are gonna. I didn't watch expect it. it to get this good of reviews. I feel like they all get good reviews. Yeah, but this one's getting like pretty glowing reviews. Yeah, it's got a good. It's got pretty. I didn't solid... realize Kelly Marie Tran was the lead. No, I didn't realize glad, either. And I'm. I'm glad... I mean, I I didn't realize Aquafina was gonna be a dragon. I mean, I don't know. I feel like Disney just kind of keeps recycling things. And they're like, oh, there was no dragon in Mulan so remake, so we had to make another dragon movie. I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's hard when you have kids because they just are interested in con. They just need the content. And WandaVision's going to end this week, and they're going to need something else to watch. They so. don't care about Captain America: Winter Soldier. I mean, maybe your son. I gotta. We gotta. We gotta preview that one first. Oh, there's just be. a lot of gun. I mean, obviously, there's, it's on Disney Plus. Yeah, it's never going to get above. Like a simulated general violence, but there's going to be a lot of gunfighting that isn't Star Wars gunfighting. So we just, you know, have to. See. Did you let them? I'm guessing you didn't let them see like Winter Soldier. They saw. So there's a lot of gunfighting in the first Avengers. There's a lot of gunfighting in Black Panther, and they saw both of those. Well, like in Winter Soldier, you know. Yeah, they have not. Uh, seen Robert Winter Redford Soldier. gets shot in the chest and bleeds from there. Yeah, there's no. They have not seen Winter Soldier yet. Have they seen Die Hard yet? They've not seen Die Hard yet. Although me and my wife, when we were watching Die Hard, we're like, I bet they love Die Hard. I mean, once again, <laughs> as evidence, I saw all these films. But it's the problem with having kids is that when you watch stuff, we had this kind of, I feel like, did we talk about this? Or maybe I was talking about it with my wife when we were watching Silence of the Lambs in this episode. I was like, at some point, our, my kids are going to watch Silence of the Lambs. They just have to. Like, in what age is my daughter going to, like, what age is appropriate for her to be like, this is Silence of the Lambs. It's a classic. 
yes, there's a guy who tucks his penis between his legs and, you know, is kidnapping a lady and is going to skin her to wear her suit as a kind of coat. But it's a classic film. Really quickly. We always talk about, like, simulated stuff versus actual stuff. This is maybe too much information. I mentioned this on, on um, the, the, when I talked about Silence of the Lambs. Yep. Did you ever try that? <laughs> to see if you could? Like, see what it was like? I think everybody I did, felt, right? Okay. Yeah. I did, and I was like, this feels weird. Everybody saw got, that movie and was just like... Is that, is that pop? They did that kind of side-eye thing they I do mean, in I movies. I didn't dance during it, but I just kind of, like, tried it, and I was like... You weren't listening to okay. Echo and the Bunnymen in your weirdo murder basement? Echo and the Bunnymen. No, it's, um... Uh, Who's Lazarus. That? Uh, Lazarus, uh, Lazarus Q, right? What the fuck is Lazarus Q? He's listening to Goodbye Horses by Lazarus Q. Oh, is it? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I just thought it was Echo and the Bunnymen. Oh, here he goes. He's looking. Lazarus, <laughs> Lazarus Q, is that the name of the band? I don't know. I thought Q it was... Q Lazarus. I got that really screwed yeah, up. That sounds stupid. All right, I forget how you transitioned this before. Um... Oh, uh, lubric. Uh, lub- maybe I need to be more maybe I'm lubricated. more lubricated. Yeah, right. there, yeah. Um, this is um, well, who farted? Yeah, who farted? From Ohio, brewed at twelve percent in North Haven. It's basically local. It's basically local. It's called Combat Spandex. It is, is a that... sour triple India Pale Ale with mango, kiwi, vanilla, and milk sugar. Awesome, but really, holy shit. Uh. It's an eleven point four. Is that Iron Sheik putting Hulk Hogan? Yeah. In, you know, it's great. Is you know, I was, I was singing before this episode, Baby Shark. Yeah. Because the reason I was because I saw a tweet from the Iron Sheik saying, "If I keep hearing that song, Baby Shark, I'm gonna find the maker of it and put them in the in the camel clutch." Yes. Pretty this good. Is serendipitous. That's my pretty friend. good. Iron Sheik is awesome. I, I hope he hasn't said anything terrible. For the most part, it seems like he hasn't. Hulk Hogan's a real piece of fucking shit. Oh, Jesus. Uh, I appreciate it. Look at this. So, Iron Sheik is so happy to yeah. be doing this. And Hulk Hogan's dead. Like, this, yeah. is, this is what should have happened in the 80s. Like, Hulk Hogan... You know what? I was a fan in the... So, really quickly. Just before we drink this beer. Apparently, in the last days of this podcast, I just go off on wrestling tangents now. <laughs> Um, speaking of which, right now, as we speak, Shaq is wrestling a match. So Shaq is dying somewhere? <laughs> somewhere. Uh, in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, Everybody dies in Jacksonville, Florida. But I remember WrestleMania 9 happening in Las Vegas. Yeah. I lived in Las Vegas. And I was a huge, and I think I've told you this story off, Mike, a huge Yokozuna guy. Yes. I loved Yokozuna with a passion. WrestleMania 9 was a good WrestleMania. It's not the right thing to say. They had like a good tag team. Not match. from a wrestling standpoint because I think wrestling oh. is stupid. Yeah. But from just like an atmosphere and like oh, a yeah, coolness yeah, yeah, standpoint yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was right. good. It was a good one. Um, and I, you know, I was okay with Bret Hart and so I remember the main event being okay with either guy winning but I really wanted Yokozuna to win and Yokozuna won. And I was like and he won by cheating and I was like cool. And then fucking bow, Hulk bow, Hogan bow, comes bow, out. Bow, bow. Yeah, that was awesome. And then beats him like that and I was like fuck you because I hated Hulk Hogan. Which I think I, I kid I like was a kid wrong, but apparently that I was saw like, into the future thirty years because Hulk Hogan's a real fucking piece of shit. But I hated Hulk Hogan at the time. If you were indifferent to wrestling or like a Hulk or, or like a Hulk Hogan fan, that was like Luke Skywalker showing up at the end of the Mandalorian because there was no advanced warning that like Hulk Hogan was going to show up and do this. But he was. I mean, he already sudden, wrestled a match. Earlier. No, but all of a sudden, like the match was over, and then all of a sudden, you know. 
Hulk Hogan's there, and for some reason it's a sanctioned title fight, and he could just he goes sort of up, he goes up the there. He runs seconds. up there and asks like Bret Hart, like, "Can I wrestle this match, brother?" <laughs> it was great. It was great. I hated, I hated it. Good atmosphere. Fucking hated Hulk Hogan. Fuck you, Hulk Hogan. All right, let's you know what? the spear. Yeah. <laughs> Lawrence Kasdan, you're off the hook. Hulk Hogan, you're on the shit list. Lawrence Kasdan was never. Ooh, that's a real milk sugar smell. That's that's, that's, that's the sour. That's sour. That's definitely a sour. Matt, I feel this beer would be much more sour if not for the milk sugar. Mm-hmm. And I f- wonder if it is a beer that would have been way too sour, like puckery sour. And then the milk sugar is like a ne- like a necessity. It the sour lingers for a while. Oh, it's a it sour. Hangs out there. Oh, it's an it is an IPA. Yeah. Um, oh, mango kiwi. I feel like I'm getting a little of one of those fruits there. Getting the... Something. Mango. And the vanilla. The kiwi, I think, would just melt behind that. Milk sugar is like the... I'm getting like... Milk sugar is like a killer. And they're putting it in everything. I think the milk sugar kind of ruins this. doesn't ruin it because I still think it's good. I think it tastes good. Yeah, I think it tastes good. But but I want more... I want it to be more aggressive. Do you know what I don't like about this? Um, yeah, I want it to be more aggressive. It it tastes like I'm drinking a melted orange sickle. Mm. But it's a mango sickle. Maybe I guess. I guess I don't know. I just feel like if something's no, cause, gonna cause think about it, it's got like that milk sugar and vanilla. Like that's there, and See, that not, creates like an ice. cream I'm not flavor. getting so much vanilla in this. I'm not getting so much of an ice cream flavor. But I think that milk sugar flavory tasting is really. Put forward. Well, what I'm saying is that vanilla. this is gonna. This is an 11.4. So if I drink two of these, I'm going to be buzzed pretty hard. I want to be. I want to be. I want to feel that stuff. I want to feel that shit rather than kind of have it masked with. If I'm going to drink a sour, and I love sour beers, I yeah. actually feel like we could drink all sours for the rest of this thing, and I'd be a very happy guy. Yeah, right. I want a couple I, months. Couple months off of the weird sours from coming out. Oh, I could. I could try to get up to OEC. And there's a, a lot of sours. Sour. A lot of sours up there, Mario. They're not weird enough yet, yeah, though. They're getting weird. Okay. I think you're getting weird. Maybe I'll go up to... I could go up to OEC in Oxford. And I will not make you do anything. I said I could. Not saying I must. Only if you want to. Point. Only if I, you want yeah, to. Yeah, I like this. Um, I think I like it more because of the Iron Sheik fucking breaking the back and making the humble of Terry Bullia. But uh, <laughs> I don't... I don't mind it. It tastes. It just tastes too much like a dessert. It does taste too much like a dessert, but not as much as you think it does. No. But it's also not sour enough. Well, I think. I think taste buds are pretty subjective. I, think I don't I'm know. Allowed, I don't think Mario. I think I'm allowed to say it tastes like a dessert. I don't think you are. I don't think you are. <laughs> you're, you're wrong in this way. You. <laughs> We've been doing this for a long time. I think we're pretty well matched on how we taste on how we taste things. I guess so. Um, I feel we're really well matched on how we taste our first film of the night. Uh, that is... If it tastes bad. The new Lee Daniels flick, because he's still making movies. The United States versus Billie Holiday. Silent trees. Get her off that stage. They're strange fruit. Let me sing nowhere, no clubs, no money, no nothing. 
You gotta understand, baby. Right now, I'm in a situation. But you said we could beat this, Billy. I need some now. Blood on the leaves. You're like a hammer. Come right back and it hit harder than before. He's singing it for all of us. Ain't no other Negro star bold enough to do it. Black body swinging. I'm being followed. I'm not gonna count in no fears. In the southern breeze. She's made something of herself and you can't take it because she's strong, beautiful, and black. Strange fruit hanging from the um billy holiday is being uh singled out by the united states government uh because she sings a song called strange fruit which is all-time classic great song that's about lynching in the south uh and uh garrett headland doesn't like it harry anslinger um, I, think, I think it's fair just to say the actor's name. Well, so we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, meanwhile, while all that is happening, uh, Billie Holiday is going through. The thing they keep attacking her on is uh, the fact that she uses drugs. She's a big heroin user. Um, she also is in a lot of relationships with various men who... Um, I don't know. I don't know what some of their names are, and there seems to be more than... Three, but I think there's only three, but I'm, there might be five. I think she had several husbands. I don't know. I'm t- I don't. I don't really know what to say, and that's part of the problem that you know we'll talk about in a little bit. She becomes close with um, a federal agent, um, Jimmy Fletcher, played by Trevante Rhodes, who I last saw in Moonlight as the last version of Chiron that we see in that movie. And, like he's the one part of this, I like. I think he's okay. I think I think he does as good a job as he can do. I guess I'm fine with Andrew Day, but I love, I'm, we'll talk about the two. Um, so yeah, Billy Holiday is played by Andre Day, who just won a Golden Globe for best performance in a drama, um, which was interesting at the time. Um, and this movie attempts to track uh, a certain period of Billy Holiday's life from like 1947 to 59 when she dies, um, which is kind of when she's. When she's developing her her kind of cultural persona, um, I mean, from a story standpoint, that's really all there is to, to say. I got a lot of problems with this movie as a film. I think Andre Day as Billie Holiday is very good to um, to great, but I don't. It's hard to it's hard to tell sometimes because I think the movie kind of hamstrings her and the script kind of hamstrings her. Um, I think some of the the supporting performances are okay for what they're like supposed to be. Like I think Lester, um, I think Tyler James Williams as Lester Young is 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 pretty good. I think um, I think Trevante Rhodes is is all right. I think his character is just weirdly drawn uh, and executed like beyond the screenplay. Um, but I think my main Criticism of this movie is it's Lee Daniels is like Lee Danielsing all over the place here, and Susan Laurie Parks, who is a, a writer that I love, uh, has written the clunkiest, clumsiest, most awkward trying to fit everything in about a person's life into uh, a really flawed package, 
at one time script that I've for a biopic that I've come across in a long time. And this is coming from someone, uh, you know, who is thinks Bohemian Rhapsody sucks and you know Ray sucks. And I'm not a biopic. Like, I say the, Taylor Hackford. Walk the line. Is that who's is that also Taylor Hackford? Uh, who did Walk the Line? Was Taylor Hackford Walk the Line and somebody else Ray? I thought Taylor no, Hackford. Taylor Hackford is Ray. Okay. No, who did Walk the Line? Um, Mangold, which is surprising. James Mangold, Mangold yeah, 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 good. <laughs> Besides um, that, I don't like. Well, I, I think Walk. The, I I find Walk the Line just kind of like passe. I think it's just awful. But that's, I mean, again, maybe I it's think just, it's kind of ruined by I don't Reese like Witherspoon. Biopics. And I think it's also ruined by Joaquin Phoenix, who was just his his method Johnny Cash thing is not cool. Yeah, doesn't that's fair. feel like Johnny Cash, doesn't look like Johnny Cash, doesn't sound like Johnny Cash, doesn't act like Johnny Cash, doesn't do anything like Johnny Cash. To that point, I think Andre Day kind of hits a lot of these marks, these Billy Holiday marks. She seems like beaten down. You know what I mean? She seems the appropriate amount of just like. Um, oppressed and strangled and, and, and worn out by like all of these these cops all around her and by this drug use. But there's a lot of stuff in this movie that doesn't make any sense. Both from a script standpoint, but just also from like a film. And I just, it 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 is just not, <laughs> it's just not very good. And I, you know, I was said I was going to try to be nice, and I guess that's the nicest thing I'm going to say is that this movie's not very good. Um. Yeah. This this uh. Oh God. Um. Of our acclaimed directors right now, the directors who get kind of their name put on the the title card mm-hmm. sort of thing. Lee Daniels has to be the the worst of the bunch. I I feel as though he has absolutely zero sense of of a style, absolutely zero sense of an ability to craft a story. I think I mean I've never seen Shadow Boxer, but mm-hmm. I think Precious is awful. Butler is like even Precious, worse. Yeah. yeah. Um and this movie is better than Butler. Maybe well, the butler is a joke, right? I mean, yeah, I, it, it's just—it's a travesty. Yeah. Um, I, 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 you know, I don't know what, how much work he did behind the scenes with Monsters Ball because he was, you know, the producer at Monsters Ball. I think Monsters Ball is pretty, pretty all right. Um, but I, I, every time I see a film from him, it's it's the flattest thing I've ever seen, and there's. It also seems exploitative. Like, Precious felt weirdly exploitative. Yeah, this agreed. does, too. Um, exactly. I, I mentioned to you that this feels like a late 90s, early 2000s melodrama, television melodrama, with way too much cursing. Like, and I, you know, I'm, I'm fine with language, but, like, it feels so forced in here. Mm-hmm. Oh, we haven't said fucking two lines, so might as well say it again. And then just random nudity. And, you know, I guess the drug use is fine. Because um, it's appropriate to the character. But there's choices made that feel as though they're trying to give it an edge. Yeah, yeah, Lee yeah. Lee Daniels yeah. doesn't know how to create that. The feeling of the edginess. Feeling, the feeling of, of, of the, the, intent, the intense racism going on at the time, you know, that Steve McQueen's able to do in... 
a PG sort of release with um, anything from Small Axe, which, mm-hmm. by the way, lost to Queen's Gambit for the Golden Globes, which further proves... Well, Small Axe I thought was weird because John Boyega won a Best Supporting Actor in a limited series, <laughs> so they, they, they took all of those things as one thing. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. And they singled out John Boyega as the winner of something. Well, he's the, he's the famous one from all those. Um, I guess so. No, I I think Andrew Day is is fine in this. I I and it's not a criticism on her performance because it feels as though that storm wall, that wave from a perfect storm is bearing down upon her. And mm-hmm. that is Lee Daniels' direction and Lee Daniels' lack of vision. And then she's barely cresting that. Mm-hmm. Because I think she's doing a lot of work here. But against the force that is just Lee Daniels' absolute lack of talent. Mm-hmm. Um, well, just, I always love how I say comments and I do like a, mm-hmm. you want to fight me? I think me? people can feel it. <laughs> um, it ends up being unimpressive. Uh, it ends up being not unimpressive. It ends up being feeling like a minor achievement. Uh, well, her performance, her performance, yeah. And it's 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 not well, a, this, a think... criticism on her performance. It's a criticism on how fucking awful Lee Daniels is as a filmmaker. Well, I think she's fighting against the film the whole no, time. Exactly. And I think that's so... why I just made the perfect storm reference. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, like, it'd be too like bad if Martin one. Too bad that Mark Wahlberg or George Clooney aren't in this movie. Um, I think it's weird to I mean, Garrett Headland. It's not funny against that. Well, here's I mean, so Garrett Headland, I guess, is he's joined my Jason Clark club, where I don't want to see him in movies. I don't want to see Garrett Headland's face in anything. That's old Gang Pearson. I kept thinking that was a Peter what? Berg movie for some reason. No, it's too good for Peter. Berg. <laughs> um. But I guess he did the movie did its job because I hated that guy. And this is not a defense of anything. A lot of the stuff that they did in the movie, they actually did to Billie Holiday. But I'm not sure what any of the point... Is that the point of this movie? Is the point of this movie to show, like, the FBI being shitty? Because if it is, there's too much Billie Holiday. Absolutely. And if this movie is supposed to be a biopic of Billie Holiday, there's too much FBI. There's and- too much people just, like, laying around doing heroin. There's too much, like, um, there, I, I don't know who this movie's for, and I don't know what this movie's doing. Who are all these people in her entourage? I don't know who any of them are. What are they doing? Who, like, what is their motivation? What is their character thing? Um, what's her name? Uh, Divine Joy Randolph, who I really liked, and the one good thing that came out of that High Fidelity show was her taking over, like, the Jack Black performance and kind of twisting it a little bit into something else. Um, or the Jack Black character and twisting it into something else. She's got an eye patch in this movie. And then she has blonde hair. And she complains a lot about not getting paid. What else is she doing? What's her character? I don't know. Who is the bald guy that's with her when she's being interviewed by the other guy? Is he supposed to be one of the other people, but like a few years later, but now he's totally bald? Yeah. I don't get it. And or oh, maybe that guy was wearing a wig and now he's not wearing his wig. That Those are all characters and those are all choices, but the, none of those choices are are like indicative of anything else that's happening in the movie. There's no, he's not like signaling anything. I don't know what's happening. From one moment to another, I don't know what's happening. Why does, is there something about Billie Holiday's character where she can only have sex either when she's being choked or from behind. Because, well, but, but, because that's the only Daniels tries to like forcefully throw like that, 
history of prostitution sort of thing in there. But the thing that, but the thing that that is a fatal flaw of this, besides everything Lee Daniels is doing, is 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 the lack of point of reference. Is the fact that immediately following setup scenes where the FBI is really trying to target her mm -hmm. unfairly and only targeting her because of the song mm -hmm. where they say the n-word 10,000 times in that one smoky conference room scene it's immediately followed by her on trial and a guy coming up to her saying like you did this to yourself because of your drugs and it's like don't fucking put that in there if we're trying to set up the fact that she's being set up like have her self-reflect on that have her be like if i'm going to be uh you know uh, uh, somebody who's who's trying to bring forth like this like the song with the civil rights like strange fruit has has kind of like the force of the civil rights movement and represent the black community like have her be reflective and maybe not able to overcome her own personal demons mm -hmm. but then have an outside force be like by the way billy holiday you brought this on yourself completely undermines like a seven minute garbage scene we have in that fbi right. conference well, or F not fbi F federal bureau of narcotics or whatever, whatever yeah. call that time they did make a did they make a Hoover reference? This would have I don't know they made this would have predated, predated Hoover. Hoover. They made some kind of reference to something that I thought was like, why are you bringing Hoover would have been late forties, right? So, but it yeah, would have been late forties. Actually, it would have been Hoover. It could have been. Yeah, but this would have been like I thought they started targeting her early for like forty two, forty three. They did, but I'm saying like the movie decided to just throw in a random Hoover reference just for fun. Oh, I guess the FBI was formed in. 35. I think um, your point, I think, is really well taken in the sense that it's, I think in the movie, the story of Billie Holiday's life is way more complicated than this movie can process, which I wouldn't have expected from Susie Laurie Parks. I'm sorry. She was, she had heroin planted on her. She was targeted for heroin. Blah, 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 blah. She also did a lot of heroin. Nobody made, like, the FBI didn't make her do heroin. She was doing a lot of heroin. Like, so the fact that they were planting stuff on her is shitty, but I think it's also really hard to tell a story just from, like, that one side of the thing because her drug use is only, seems like a, that's nice looking. That's a good color. It's a nice, it's a nice color. Um, her drug use is only relevant in this film in as much as it allows the FBI to target her for the thing. It becomes a plot point and not part of like her struggle to deal with whatever. Yeah. Because it seems like the only thing she's struggling with is the FBI. Because if they weren't bothering her so much, her drug use wouldn't be a problem. And she could just sing the song. They also make it seem like she has she's never sung this song. But also that she sings it all the time. But if she sings it all the time, why do we only get to see it once? Why can't she there be... If, and if you're going to make up scenes, like they you know, they made up stuff in this movie. Why not make up a scene where she sings it in like a different context? Why are there all these dream sequences? Why is there all this like stylistically impressionistic filmmaking in the middle of, you know, just a tough... Like a tough scene. Like I don't... Uh, like where Jimmy... I, yeah, like where they go to the brothel when she's gets out of the van and she's or, or out of the bus and she goes into the woods to pee and then she stumbles on, I guess she stumbles on a lynching, but then she goes in the house and then they're backstage. 
Like I don't, I don't, I don't get it. Like what? Why? What is this well, for? What, what is the point of this? A director who has no sense of vision. But I think it's so weird, and I think it's, and I think it's. I want to put it all in Lee Daniels, and I made my notes for this. I think it's fair because right. I don't like. I think the screenplay is weak. The screenplay is so bad. But, but I think the screenplay is. I wouldn't be surprised if be, he fucked it up. Been rehabilit- like even if it was this level, I think it could be rehabilitated by a, a director with some sort of vision. Do I? Do I want it? Like because screenplays often have right. have have flaws where it's like when you write something down, you have a vision in your head and it doesn't come out, yeah. and it takes a director or you know a director slash producer connection to kind of like bring that intent of the screenwriter to mm-hmm. fruition um and so i'm not gonna really credit like damage the screenplay here because i think there's parts beats of the screenplay that, that hit that work, are fun that, that, are, that, are, that, that are biopicy yeah like i think it could have been very rote sort of or root or whatever a rote sort of biopic but this is like an abomination of a film well, don't you get the and impression because of the fact that like lee daniels has nothing to offer. The only thing, actually, he has like he is a he's the antimatter of film talent. That's funny. He <laughs> annihilates, like, well, actually, that's, good work. That's a, that's really awesome. That leads to my next point: is that like, don't you get the impression that this script was probably like 180 pages, and he's like, cool, and he just like chopped it up and it was like we need to make this more obvious we need to make this more obvious we need to make this more or obvious or it was like and 90 pa- or it was like 90 100 pages and he decided to like throw whatever and to that it. point like he's got good people so like you know the cinematography i thought was really weird in this and like smoky really smoky well, and then what was the what was the fuck what the fuck was with the aspect ratio changing all the time? No. And they were they filmed stuff like it was news footage, but it was actual footage, and it would go from the news to the actual, and then the aspect ratio would change, like sometimes like four times in like, you know, the span of a thing, but just for no reason. It felt really like it was trying to like do a JFK sort. Of yeah, thing. but like this guy Andrew Dunn, who did the cinematography, is just like a is like a is a workman like guy. So he did like the Children Act in 2017. He did that book club movie with like, it's like a Diane Keaton vehicle in 2018. He did The Secret, which is a Josh Lucas, <laughs> Katie Holmes, Josh, Josh Lucas, another another one of our yeah. He did um, that Flora and Ulysses movie that's on Disney Plus is actually pretty good. He's doing some kind of Cinderella thing, I guess, or something. This guy works, and so he knows what he's doing. This movie was edited by like Jay Rabinitz. I, yeah. like, I just like saw yeah. that. I was like, what's he doing here? He knows what he's doing too, which means that the flaws of this... And Susan Laurie Parks 100% knows what Maybe she's doing. Maybe he thought he was editing a Jim Jarmusch movie. <laughs> Maybe he thought, he thought he was editing a Darren Aronofsky movie. Um, he 100% did not think he was these editing people Tree of Life. know what they're doing, okay? And then Lee Daniels is like, yeah, you guys are good at your job, but why don't you do it like this so it makes no sense? This Jay Rabaski has to be the guy who has the most films on our pivotal film list. Jerry Benowitz, yeah. From different directors. Right? Sure, yeah, yeah. Because Clean Shaven, Requiem. The Fountain. Uh, well, that's Arnofsky, Tree of Life. So three different directors. Oh, you mean directors, yeah. Yeah. Still. Good work, Jay Rabinowitz. Yeah. You know what? Maybe he tried. He also, to too. be honest, maybe somebody brought him in here to be like, fucking do something. Do something with this, yeah. Please, for the love of... It's like Boy Erased, because he did Boy Erased too. Oh, maybe no. he's just been brought in now to be like, 
fix it. Figure it out. Figure it out. Um, I should have brought him in for, a, what was it, the snowman or whatever? <laughs> I think high fives, I think, though, Mario, or like tip of the cap, or you tried your best, I think, segues really nicely into our next movie. Because there's some people in this movie that I think are just giving it their best shot. But it's just the movie. Yeah. It is what it is. They're trying their hardest to make it not what it is. They're chasing down a dream, just like they're chasing down a mouse in a hotel. And it's Dunstan checks in. And it's it's Tom and Jerry. (laughs) If a picture of this mouse is tweeted up to Instabook Face or Tiki Talk, we will be ruined. No, sir, that's not going to happen. That rodent is toast. I will not let this hotel be ruined by a cat and a mouse. He's dying with us. I think I might have just pulled this off. Really? We blowing up the whole thing. Everybody in the bouncy house go bouncy, bouncy. Josie and the Pussycats, this is not. Oh, I like that movie. I know, that's what I'm saying. Josie and the Pussycats, this is not. Uh, you know, Tom and Jerry, they don't like each other. Tom is pretty depressed in this. I don't like the fact that they have feelings. <laughs> yeah, me either. Uh, so, Chloe Grace Mort- Mortiz or she starts working at a hotel. And this hotel has a... Through has a, trickery. Yeah. Subterfuge, stealing a resume, As a, and then ripping off the top, and someone being like, "That's cool." Yeah, that's fine. Um, it has a mouse problem, and there's a big wedding coming up. And wouldn't you know it? That mouse is Jerry, yeah. and Tom is going to help. He's going to become an employee of the hotel to get that goddamn mouse. Hijinks happen. This is this is gonna be the worst plot script ever because who cares? What's the plot? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hijinks happen. The wedding seems like it's it's not gonna go that well. Michael Pena's pretty mad a lot, maybe because Chloe Mortez didn't become a Scientologist during the making of this movie. Ah, uh, um, it's too bad. <laughs> uh, you know, Colin Jost is there, being the husband. I don't like seeing husband. that much Colin Jost. Yeah, there's too much Colin Jost. I don't like his face. He's got a bad mouth shape. I was, I was happy Rob Delaney didn't end up being the villain. I love Rob Delaney in this movie. I, yeah, I thought he was going to be like the villain in this, and he just didn't end up being like the main villain. I was like, good job, Rob Delaney. I like this. His mustache is working overtime. You know what I didn't hate in this year? Ken Jeong. See, when he was bashing the, the cake, there was like one shot where he's just like screaming and then hitting the cake, and I was just... I was like, that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, you know, eventually... He calls that guy his son. Eventually Tom and Jerry <laughs> work together. The wedding goes off in the park. I guess. But then they destroy and then it they again. get angry at each other. And that's the end. Um, 
this it's bad. It's really bad. It's better than the United States versus Billy Holiday. Well, I don't. I mean, I don't even know we can compare them. It's like a <laughs> rotten apple to a rotten orange. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't even know what I, I, the jokes in this. Like, this is a movie where I, I kind of I, I stumble about and go like. I call it the mouse hunt test. Mm-hmm. The movie, me, the mouse hear hunt. Me, hear me out on this. The Nathan Lane movie. Yeah, the Nathan yeah. Lane. Uh, who else? I forgot his brother or whatever in that movie. Uh-huh. So, Mouse Hunt was a movie I loved as a kid, mm-hmm. and then I came back and rewatched it as an adult, mm-hmm. and I was like, I'm going to hate this, and it was still fun. Yeah, because there's enough. It's it's a kids movie through and through. Yep. Like the jokes it's not one of those like it's not a, a family movie it's not something that's geared towards like laughters for the whole family but it's inoffensive enough and well made enough to where you can still find it entertaining and have a few laughs and nostalgia that's how at, i feel about like yeah i've i went through the same thing with my kids like here are funny movies and they're just like that's not funny i'm like it is funny i actually find it very funny still yeah um you know, so I use Mouse Hunt as the test mm-hmm. because, like, I've come back to like the Sandlot, and mm. I think the Sandlot sucks now because mm. it didn't pass that test. Little Giants is on that line. Oh, uh, Little Giants! I think is Little tough. Giants kind of falls beneath the Mouse Hunt test. Mm. But like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I thought would fail that test. Which and one? The, the, the first original, one. The the nineteen ninety one. Oh yeah, and it passes it with like flying colors. I think I actually maybe appreciate it. That's a weird fucking even, movie. It is. I think I appreciate it more because it's really of how, dark. How dark it is. Um, but you know, I was Casper. Casper just barely passes the oh, test. Oh, Casper's awful. But I hated Casper when it came out. So yeah. Well, you were like fourteen or fifteen. Like forty seven. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but like I saw it as a kid, like I saw in this like summer in Elko, Nevada, like seven, like also was one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, Polly was another one. Uh, Polly fails the test. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Polly um, barely fails the test. I so I sat here looking at that through this lens, going mm-hmm. like, early on I was like, this is not going to be a movie at all with jokes for an adult because mm-hmm. I don't think there's anything there. It's not. That's for an adult. Yeah. Um. But I, I ended up looking and going, like, like kind of giving the benefit of the doubt, saying, like, maybe as a kid I would appreciate that. Until Spike is being walked and aggressively takes a shit in the middle of a road. <laughs> Bobby Cannavale taking his, like, doing dog-taking shit sounds. Because <laughs> he ate too many burritos. But so aggressively <laughs> staring at that. And that was the second I would have been like, as a kid, I would have fucking hated this movie from then and that's why i think it fails well so i can say definitive i watched this with a kid um and then eventually a second kid well because i can imagine your daughter my son was me and my son were watching it son being in a weird line they're they kind of they watch america's funniest home videos every every week bob saget no 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 the new ones i don't know whatever they are um Oh, is that the, what's his face from? Alfonso Ribeiro, yeah, yeah. Oh, not... no, Tom Bergeron got fired. I think because he's a pervert. Uh, I think there was weird Tom Bergeron stuff. He got fired from that, and he got fired from Dancing with the Stars, like you know, soon after one another. The beer we didn't review is getting better. Oh, good. Um, there's more of it. Um, I don't know. We probably shouldn't drink it. No. Um, they like certain stuff. They like when people fall down. 
They like when cats, animated cats, get their heads pushed inside their bodies and then have to pull it out. You know what I mean? They like when you set up big traps and the mouse gets out and then the mouse drops a bowling ball in the cat's hands. When it's Do they love when, when Warner Brothers harkens back for the thousandth time to the 89 Tim Burton Batman movie? They yeah, they, they, but they also have questions. Like, why why is there rapping pigeons in the beginning of the movie to Tribe Called Quest? And and why is there T-Pain singing Tom's voice to another cat in the middle of the movie? They don't also don't understand, like, why Tom and Jerry are acting like this when they have the ability to comprehend reason, but just won't. Are their instincts as cats and mouse so, like, you know, like he shows his DNA and, and Chloe Grace Morris can apparently see his DNA, which I guess is a subversion of like old school cartoon, like when they when you the cartoons and the people match, you know what I mean? The idea that like people can see everything the, the cartoon is doing. It's not just for us; it's for them too. And she's like, "Oh, it's a real Robert Zemeckis world." Yeah. It's- Um, but they don't like the dog taking a shit aggressively in the street even though I was like waiting for them to find it funny there was no laughs at that they were just like "Mm." yeah it's because that's a lot and then when they bring it back later and they're like that and my son was like oh that's in the middle of the wedding and I was like yeah that's gonna ruin like why is everything why is the default setting on this movie, like, just ruin shit. It's it's just it's okay okay. We're we're using too much reason here, Mario. No, no, that's I wasn't trying. Like that's why remember I used the mouse in, hunt rule. Remember in the Lost World. Remember when you saw the the Lost World, the sequel to the Jurassic Park. Woman daughter. <laughs> that scene. No, no, no. Remember the movie The Lost World? Yeah, I, was, I, was, okay. I thought you were mentioning Remember something. Remember when you watched The Lost World and like, oh, they're on the island again and whatever, blah, 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 blah. Second Vince island. Vaughn, you know, Julianne Moore, who, you know, had sequel-itis back then and it was just like, you know. I think that just, set that off. Yeah. Um, and then like, you're she like, okay. She started doing a bad southern accent during the middle of the this movie. This is bad. But also, it's like fun because it's like Jurassic Park again. And then remember when the dinosaurs came on land, and you were just like, "Well, that's that's too much now." I no, I had see, I have a different point. I my different point in that film, and I remember this in '97 as a kid or '98 or whatever when it came out. I remember getting angry, and I remember feeling that same way and thinking like, "This is not Jurassic Park." Like I love Jurassic Park, obviously. We talked about on the podcast. But I remember getting mad when, like, the good-hearted paleontologist guy mm-hmm. gets, like, the stake crawling down him. Mm-hmm. And, like, when they're in the waterfall. Yep, yep. And then it gets his arm bitten and dragged off. And it becomes, like, a, a blood spray sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, I remember yeah. going, like... I remember thinking, like, earlier, going... Like, as a kid, and I couldn't make... I couldn't formulate these thoughts, you know, eloquently. But when Eddie dies, it seems mean. But it's like, oh, this is the world they're in. Mm-hmm. But that's, like... You get, you get one of those. Mm-hmm. You know, you get one of those in that movie. Then when the paleontologist dies later on, it has it's like used for a horror scare. I'm like, yeah, yeah. now it's just me. Well, and I tuned out there, right? And so, and I, then it just continues. And then when they go just, into land, it continues. So my point is that you get to a point with some of these movies where 
even though it's totally unbelievable anyway, you're willing to suspend like a certain amount of like disbelief. Not even disbelief, because that's like makes it seem like you're trying to use reason. I kind of this Tom and Jerry thing. You're willing to give it some. I'm giving it a, like a, a, you're a giving lot it of feet, leeway. Yeah, feet yeah, of yeah. Leeway. They can't. You can't make a Tom and Jerry movie, and I don't. And I want. I want. I don't want to spend too long talking about this. I want to. I do want to talk a little bit about like the weirdo critical stuff about this. You can't make a Tom and Jerry movie when the ramifications of Tom and Jerry's feud is hundreds of millions of dollars of destruction. You just can't do it. Oh my god! Just broke this out. I just. It doesn't. I, I. It's. Like, they fucked, like, that first room when they fight. Yeah. They fucked that room up. Like, and, and as someone who's, like, I don't I don't have a relationship to Tom and Jerry, all of these motherfuckers that are reviewing this movie that are just like, it's not true to the nature of Tom and Jerry. Tom and Jerry represented X, Y, and Z when I was a kid. Like, fuck you, man. Tom and Jerry was a cat running for a mouse and then a cat's face hitting the wall. That was Tom and Jerry. That's all Tom and Jerry was. Tom and you Jerry what, was just a better Sylvester and Tweety. Sure. You know what? By the way, happen? Sylvester and Tweety sucks because Tweety's one of the worst. Tweety is terrible. Yeah. Looney Tunes characters ever. He, the worst. Tom and Jerry didn't move from house to house, like sociopathically destroying people's lives. You made a movie in 2021 where cartoon cats. And a cartoon mouse destroy people's lives. Yeah, and it would have been. It would have been. You know what I mean? Like that doesn't. Why did you make this this way? I guess it would have been fine had there been like more of this weird interaction of the of the animated world with. um, Why can't this just be fun? Yeah. Why does there have to be more interaction of the animated world with like the real world sort of thing, where it's kind of like the real world has that sort of animated quality to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just a real world with people that like might any be valance, homeless. If any valance gets hit with something, he bounces off like a cartoon. Fucking Chloe Grace Moritz's character is sneaking into the fucking hotel to eat her continental breakfast. We're assuming because she's poor. Yeah. Why is there a poor person? Just make a cat run into a wall chasing a mouse. Why does it have to be the threat of poverty? Or, or like, or like, if you're destroying a room, have somebody go into the room and be like, have like a maid go in and be like, "Oh, this is gonna be a long cleanup." Yeah. Why are there? Where we- it's just like she just says like, "Ah, oh, shucks." Why like, are there- like a I love Lucy sort of? Reference. Why are there weaponized drones? Why are we fucking looks shaming this girl who's like, "Oh, she's so sneaky." We'll just then just cast a regular looking person. Don't cast like someone who has a really unique facial structure to like. Play this person because you're clearly mocking her. Are you talking about Patsy Farron? Yeah, yeah. Who's fine and very funny in the role that she's playing, but she's not like, you know. Yeah, put her put her in like weird garb. If you're gonna make her sneaky, put her in like something weird clothing. This I don't understand the. And these are two these these movies are related because somebody had to think something up and then they started making choices. And I don't understand in either of these movies why anybody made the choices that they made. You know what I mean? Why make these choices? Why are you doing these movies like this? Because it's, it's Tim's story. That's why. Yeah, who is, who is Tim's story again? Did the I know first that... two Fantastic Four movies. Oh. The Taxi, the Queen Latifah, oh my Jimmy God. Fallon film. Um, that movie's terrible. He All did the most recent Shaft. He did Ride Along. 
which I should know. It was right along Kevin Hart. Yeah, that's Kevin Hart. And Ice Cube. Yeah. The Kevin They made a second ride along movie? <laughs> I, so I just I I'm I was perplexed and like there my it got some chuckles out of my guy. Um yeah, when I, terrible you know, things like, when bad things honestly, happen to the animals. When, when, you whenever the, the chainsaw you came the out. Pa- the T Pain scene? Yeah. I found that kind of like cute and funny. Like it was so dumb, but I kinda of found like kinda of, it was fun. Like when this movie's being that was fun, not the worst thing that did. No, yeah. when this movie's being fun in a really dumb way, mm-hmm. it's inoffensively okay. Well, did I that... could I could see like if I had a kid, and if that movie was made up of those scenes, being like, I'm fine with this. Yeah, um, but and then that's like the mouse hunt thing because in the end, like the 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 mice, the mouse tries to like help out because like, there's a real meanness to this movie. But why like, isn't my point is that like why isn't Chloe Grace Moritz if they can understand reason why isn't Chloe Grace Moritz saying to Jerry listen you motherfucker stay in your fucking room I'll deliver a couple of slices of cheese to you every fucking day he has a, and you can he has live a TV. and you can live here yeah and I won't bother you stay in your fucking room and stop coming out or even if just for the weekend just fucking stay here and Tom like I have a room in this hotel. Go stay in my room. I'll get a keyboard for you. Right. I'll do whatever you want to do. Clearly, they can understand stuff. Why isn't she making these deals with them and then nothing goes wrong? And why is the movie trying to pretend like um, Michael also, Pena is, is like not who he says he is? When clearly at the end of the movie, he is who he says he is. But who cares if he is who he says he is? Who gives a shit? Also, why is the dog animated? It'd be so much funnier if that was a real dog. I don't know, man. I don't know. It was a t- it was a tough week yeah. for new movies. Whew. It was. <laughs> I did not have any fun. Yeah, no, me either. But we had fun with our number fives. I did. I did have a lot of fun. And we'll be right back with my, my number five. I assume. I don't know. We're rock paper scissors. This one. We should. That's We're a rock, good one. Uh, best On the two air? or three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Now. No. Uh, when we come back. Okay. All right, we're back. We and Mario are going to do a first here. Number five is actually a good number to try something new out. Yeah. I think we both have uh, we both have a, sen- a sense that either one of these conversations can go, or both of them will be really good. These are, we feel some things about these movies. And so we're going to do rock, paper, scissor. Best two out of three. Mario's doing some stretches. Uh, he's getting ready, limbering up. I'm getting my, my notes out for my Do you movie. have a preference? Do you have like a way that you usually go? You don't have to tell me. Uh, but when you rock, play it, when you do scissors, this. Shoot. Okay. So one, two, three, shoot. Gotcha. Okay. That's what I was that's exactly what I wanted to know. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. Rock beats Mario's rock beats my oh, scissors. I guess we gotta announce against <laughs> it. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. Oh, Mario's paper beat my rock. So I go first? Yeah. Okay. Because well, next week. <clears throat> 100% your movie goes first. So. Okay. Wait, um, what, what, what went last, last week? My movie went last last week, right? No, mine did. Yours did? Okay, yeah. Yeah. You're, you're okay with Eternal Sunshine going first? I'm always. <laughs> Sorry, that was an accident. <laughs> Doesn't matter. You're okay with your movie? I'm always okay with okay. it going first. Uh, my movie, as Mario already said, is uh, Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was okay. Hello. 
I'm Howard Mirziak, founder and president of Lacuna Incorporated. Why remember a destructive love affair? Here at Lacuna, we have perfected a safe, effective technique for the focused erasure of troubling memories. In a matter of hours, our patented non-surgical procedure will rid you of painful memories and allow you a new and lasting peace of mind you'd never imagined possible. This is a hoax, right? I assure you, no. Is there any risk of brain damage? It's on a par with a night of heavy drinking. Nothing you'll miss. Eternal Sunshine, directed by uh, Michael Gondry, Michelle Gondry, the acclaimed director of Be Kind Rewind, um, which is how he's known best for, I think, in this country. Um, the Science of Sleep. Did he also do The Science of Sleep? Remember The Science of Sleep? Did you like I The did, Science of Sleep? Weren't you super excited? Oh, no. Maybe, maybe you weren't super excited for it. I was super excited for it. I was. Because I was like, oh, first movie after Eternal Sunshine. I'm ready. You know what's funny? I was like re-watching Eternal Sunshine. I thought spike jones had directed this movie it seems much less actually it's watching this movie as much as i do it seems much less um of a michael uh, michelle gondry picture if only because it uses less like um string material yeah I was gonna, yeah everything's just done on camera it seems like and with with makeup or kind of lighting effects and much less of it is done with like stuff you know, with all, like, the crafting materials and what have you. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, and I can't imagine that would be that many of you, uh, Joel Barish, played by Jim Carrey, is dating Clementine Kruczynski, played by Kate Winslet. Um, they date for They meet on a beach in Montauk. They date for a while, and then things go bad, and uh, Clementine decides she's going to have uh, Joel erased from her memory. Uh, this is done at the Lacuna Center, uh, which is uh, the, I don't know, it's the life's work of a Dr. Mearswack, played by Tom Wilkinson, who at the time was having a moment between In the Bedroom and this, and Michael Clayton. He was he was all over the place. Michael Clayton would be several years later. This is 2004. Michael Clayton was 2007. And In the Bedroom is 2001. So yeah, so he was like, oh, this. Yeah. But it was like a window God. where Tom Wilkinson was We like talked a about guy. In the Bedroom when I talked about Little Children, right? Because I, I fucking, think so. I love In, in the Bedroom. I like parts of Little. Uh, little not Little Children. Yeah, like I don't little like any parts of, of that. Um, I like parts of it. I like it until he kills him. And then. Yeah, agreed. I was re, like, re, yeah. Revert back to insert episode number here. Yeah. Um. Joel finds out and decides he wants to have Clementine erased from his own memory. In the middle of the procedure, he decides he doesn't want to have her erased from his memory. He likes some of these memories. And so uh, the movie kind of details um, the internal 
uh, process that Joel goes through to retain some memory of Clementine and the external processes that Mirzwiak and his uh, his technicians, played by a young Mark Ruffalo, uh, young Kirsten Dunst, and uh, one of the great film villains in the history of film, uh, but underrated... Uh, Elijah Wood is Patrick. Is it Mark Ruffalo is like thirty-seven in this? And but he looks, looks like, he's like, like he's like twenty-two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and just like Garrett Headland, I didn't have like a super. Besides, like the Lord of the Rings movies, which didn't make me like Elijah Wood very much at all. This movie made me fucking hate Elijah Wood, and it's taken me some time to kind of let Elijah Wood get back into my good graces as a as a person I want to see in things. Could Wilford help? No, but the uh, over the hedge, over the over the wall, there's like an animated yeah, show yeah, that he over did, the hedge, which is very good and weird, and he does a voice over on the it. garden garden wall. Over the garden wall, yeah, and it's very cool. Um, that kind of that helped more than anything to kind of put him back in my good graces. Um, I saw this when it came out. Saw this movie in theaters, as did a lot of people, and I think it's become a. Uh, Not to interrupt you, is this one of the uh, experiences you had at the theater? I don't even know where I saw this movie because I think so it, was, it wasn't at. Um, I don't think it was in Orange. It might have been though, but it also might have. No, this is too. Forgetting that theater's name right in now. New Haven. I don't think this was a York Square movie. York Square, yeah. I think this was a bigger movie than that. This was a Jim. This is a 2004 Jim Carrey. Movie. Yeah. So even though he wasn't, and it was Charlie Coffin coming off of, like, Adaptation. still kind of coming off of of all that stuff that he was yeah. doing, being John Malkovich. Kate Winslet was a big actress at the time. Um, I think her nomination was kind of one of those things that they just gave her. I mean, Kate Winslet's been the recipient of a lot of Oscar nominations just for being in something. And even from some wins for just being in a thing. Um, I'm looking at you, the reader. <laughs> That's right. I say, um, like, yeah, she won for the reader, didn't she? <laughs> she did. She totally won for the reader. Um, there was a lot of... So there was a lot of big people. Elijah Wood was... Kind of big at the time. Well, it's coming off of coming off of Lord of the Rings. Rings. So yeah, there's a lot of this is a lot Kristen of. Kristen Dunst is starring in Spider Man Two at the time. She's starting in Spider Man Two. Mark Ruffalo is not doing much. Well, he's coming off of You Can Count on Me. The big time, <laughs> big time Laura Linney vehicle that he's a co-star of, but is excellent in that. Well, he I, actually looks like a, a man in his thirties. <laughs> yeah, he looks like a down and out guy. This movie, he looks like a kid that would totally have a shitty conversation about the Clash while smoking weed and eating a donut next to Kirsten Dunst, next to a pajama Jim Carrey. Um, I loved it when I first saw it. I think if I first, if I was making this list when um, I first saw it, it might have been lower. Because... It was doing things inside of it that I didn't recognize were important to me until I recognized that they were allowed to be important to me. We just had a 20-minute conversation off-air, as we're wont to do. Especially after 11.4% beers. No more 11.4% beers. It's out. Um, we have a solid 8% rule through the end of the podcast. Big Lebowski, we'll real, real, real open it up. Big Lebowski might be an Uber night. Because <laughs> we, I think we owe it to our fans to... Drink some, drink some white Russians or sarsaparilla. We have to find a good sarsaparilla 
to, I think, I to think balance I the white Russians. I think I might be able to find a good sarsaparilla. I, think mm. I remember having a good sarsaparilla. Well, how about this? You provide the white Russian material, and I'll provide the sarsaparilla. Also, I, just, I just said Big Lebowski. So nobody doesn't know that's coming up. You didn't say what number it was. I don't think. Not yet. Okay. Um, you definitely have to get creamers, and we're definitely going to stir it with our fingers. <laughs> so we have experienced the, the, the full, the full uh, thing of it. Um... Part of the conversation we were having is maybe some of it will come up later, maybe some of it won't. But one of the part of the conversation we were having was about the relationship between Joel and Clementine, and it was weird because even at the time that I saw it, I was uh, twenty two, twenty yeah twenty two when this movie came out twenty two twenty three. Um, had girlfriends and and uh, uh, you know was drinking and and being pretending to be an adult and playing in bands and doing all the things that like people that pretend to be adults do. Um, but at no point did I say to myself, um, wow, I wish I could, wish I could date Clementine or at no point did I connect with the, the, the nature of the relationship between Joel and Clementine or even between, um, you know, Mary and Stan or like any of the relationships that are kind of contained in here. Like I didn't, I didn't, I didn't connect with the movie on, on like a relationship level. I connected with the movie primarily on an aesthetic level, which is, I think this movie is kind of widely regarded, at least according to Wikipedia, but also just from listening to people talk on podcasts and stuff about, about film. This is kind of regarded as like one of like the, the pinnacles of American film from like the, the beginning, like, you know, the last 20 years. Um, I think in a lot of ways it was seen as an oddity when it came out. It was just kind of it was well received, but it was just kind of like, well, that was that was weird. I think if people well, thought I remember so many people being so excited about one screenplay, right? But it was it was, but they tend they also tend to give screenplay awards to to weird stuff that doesn't yeah, for last. Sure. Like you know, but I keep forgetting that Jojo Rabbit won an Academy Award last year, not for original screenplay, but just for just won an Academy Award. Um, <clears throat> not for Scarlett Johansson, which is Taika Waititi has an Oscar awesome totally cool we're definitely okay with that um but aesthetically at the time i hadn't seen anything like it i i I didn't know what my michelle gondry was was up to um i didn't know that this style of filmmaking was kind of like a thing that could happen um the puzzle nature of this film i think really kind of got to me but it's also one of those films that's kind of not like Pulp Fiction, you know what I mean? Which like I think sets out to present itself as a puzzle, as to present itself as a kind of Byzantine noir film that you kind of have to figure out and 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 uh, you know, align timelines and all this other shit. And ultimately, that stuff by the end of the film, that stuff didn't really matter. What you were left with was a feeling and an emotion and those feelings and emotions as you kind of process them in the moment were cool. But again, the emotion was not attached to a desire to have a relationship. The the emotion was attached for me as relating directly to the idea of how Joel, maybe it's, I can't even blame Joel, about the Lacuna Corporation or the Lacuna whatever, um, decided that it was going to it was going to jog your memory it was going to like map your brain the idea that stuff the stuff in your life 
contained within them little green dots of memory that Mark Ruffalo would then sneak into your house later and erase from your head. This is something that I've, if you're following the podcast very closely, for the couple of people that are doing that, thank you. What are you doing? Thank (laughs) thank you. This is the thing that comes up again and again and again with me. I am, uh, I am always kind of, I marvel at the way that marvel the way and I'm confounded at the way that like the stuff in our lives kind of contains the essence of a lot of, of who we are and how we um, confront the world. And I, so one of the things, so we talked about this a little bit with tree of life last week. And so this JFK and tree of life and eternal sunshine of the spotless mind really form like a triumvirate of, of films about stuff wherein JFK is a film that's, about film, about filmmaking. It's it's about JFK loosely in as much as it's, you know, re- really about, like, an honest depiction of, like, who Oliver Stone thinks killed JFK or whatever. Um, but he uses the... The way that he uses the medium of film to tell that story is, I think, it's one of the films in which I think film was kind of created to do. You know what I mean? Like, you can really only... You can, you can write, like, a thousand-page book about... JFK being assassinated, but you can't Im- imbue that thousand-page book with any kind of feelings about what it might mean to a, a person living in a country about like JFK being assassinated. And I think film, this film could do that. It's three hours long, but like sitting through it, you know, you feel like not not in a real sense. No, no, in no, a, in a real sense. In a because, sci-fi, go back in time a, and fix it sense. But that's maybe. A, but it's not even not even in that sense. It's the idea that like the idea that it matters at all. You know what I mean? The idea that like this Oliver Stone is laying out using these tools. The idea that this matters. Mm-hmm. Where I think both of you and me, as we talked about, grew up not really thinking that it mattered all that much. I mean, it matters in the sense that like an American president was assassinated um, and killed, but. The the um, yeah eleven twenty two sixty three really kind of brought it into the foreground that it matters to somebody. Well, that it, it matters, but I even think that Al's the fact the idea that it matters. Well, I more, more more meant like Stephen King. Like oh it yeah, mattered yeah, yeah. To Stephen, but King I'm going to be very honest with you. I think the the idea that it mattered to Stephen King was probably directly related to him seeing oh, JFK right. because I think in his author's note he mentions. Yeah. Like JFK and says like, oh, Oliver Stone's thing is bullshit. One person did it. Blah 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 blah. Um, film conveys that thing because you can use the medium. You can combine music and you can combine words and you can combine images to create a scene like the 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 Mr. X scene, where you're just like, wait, what? But it feels like. So it feels like the earth is kind of moved. If you're if you're into that, if you know, I'm not saying that everyone should be, um, but if that's what you're if 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 you're inclined to see things that way, when I saw that scene, like the earth moved a little bit, and I was just like, holy fucking shit, this is cool. The last you know the last Garrison, thirty minutes of Garrison speeches, just kind of telling us why this is important. I don't know if that's why it's important to me. Actually, it's not important to me. I found out now that I'm 38 years old. Um, but it feels like in that moment when you're watching it that maybe it's it's more important than I think it is or it should be more important than I think it is. To that end, I think Tree of Life presents something where 
you almost want to go back and kind of relive your childhood so you can see what like the wind going through your hand at a certain age felt like could you connect could you connect like an emotion to it can you connect a feeling to it can you connect in a change in your existence to that to the to blades of grass to getting slapped in the face by your dad to breaking a window to like feeling a woman's undergarment for the first time to like doing any of those things can you sense a change in yourself from having experienced any of those things i think Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind narrows that shit down to, like, an adult level. Like, you are an adult. You have interests. They are vague in both directions, male and female. You know, Joel has just a job that he has to call in sick to, and, and Clementine works at Barnes & Noble. You can assign, like, cultural meaning or whatever to that to whatever you want, though. They both have... A personal aesthetic that's manifested in things. One of the interesting things I said to my wife when we were watching this last night was that, like, you couldn't make this movie now because this movie assumes that you and a girlfriend bought CDs together. Someone that's in a relationship with a girl now for the first time may never buy a piece of music together in any kind of meaningful way ever. Oh, books still. Books, but, like... Like the CDs, the CD thing I thought was funny because it's just like, still, hey, listen to this. You still make a playlist cool. for, a but, it's not, Spotify but it's not thing. physical. You know what I mean? You're not gonna, I think it's interesting in this, it would, if you made this movie today, they'd be like, you have to turn your phone over. Yeah, yeah. And right. we will wipe it clean of everything. But even then, there's still probably going to be some vestige of of that person or some of your search history or something. Which Why is, did I retweet this woman so much? Right, but the, what the, which is an interesting kind of thing that I don't... Another rabbit hole that I don't want to get into in the sense that I think the way that this movie works, which I definitely didn't recognize the first time I saw it, it's only taken, like, you know, having seen this movie 60 or 70 times since the first time I saw it, is that, like, the way that this movie functions in terms of the fact that, like, Joel can't get rid of things is that... He's tied too many things to Clementine. So there's, there is, there are Clementine echoes like all over everything. And Clementine is feeling the same thing outwardly that Joel is feeling inwardly. Where there's just, by Patrick kind of quoting all of these things to Clementine, it's not just about the, it's not about erasing the facts of anything from each other's minds. It's erasing, you can't erase the feeling of those things. You know what I mean? Joel and Clementine laying on that ice together and Joel saying those words to her, to Patrick, they're just words. They're words in a journal. You know what I mean? That Joel has exemplified later in a picture of a potato. Two potatoes. You know what I mean? Dressed up like Joel and Clementine. But to Clementine, they evoke not just a mental feeling, not just a mental, like, a memory that you can kind of, like, shoot, but something something deeper. You know Cockles. what I mean? Cockles, as Cockles. Dan Cleary would say. Or Bill Hicks, maybe. This movie is all about Cockles. And that fucking shit, that's my shit. I've literally kind of devoted hundreds of thousands of hours. No, hundreds of thousands. Thousands of hours. <laughs> I've been alive for a long time. I've devoted thousands of hours to thinking about that. I'm gonna check your math while you're talking about that this. thing. Um, 
Mario, I don't even know why we just why we drink. You've beer. been you've been alive at least five hundred and forty seven years, by the way. If I devoted hundreds of thousands of hours to it, at least two hundred thousand hours would be. Wait, no, I screwed that up. That, that's wrong. Keep so what I was gonna say is that like I don't know why we drink weird beer because Miller High Life is all anybody ever needs. It's it's a good beer. It's all you need. Um, I've devoted a lot of time to thinking about that exact thing, and when I watch Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, twenty two years you've de- you've you've dedicated more years to this movie than it's been out. <laughs> No, but I've definitely devoted more years to thinking about this idea than this movie has than that, this right. movie has been out. That's right. And I think the interesting thing about the trajectory of this podcast is that um my the movie we did last week I think was a kind of confirmation. This movie made me aware of the fact that there was like a seed there that like alerted me to like a legitimate train of thought within myself that related to my like to my space mm. self. And my number one is the perfect exemplification of that idea on film. It is not an accident that both of these films are related to each other. You know what I mean? And people who have been are connoisseurs of this podcast should have been able to work this out by now but if not you, you know if you just guess they are number one is earth girls are easy if, if you guess pretty well you'll figure this out um and so when i watched this movie again last night i i at the end of the movie you know i walked in tonight and you to the studio and you're watching it on the on the monitors you have like 17 monitors on kate winslet's face was there, you know, Larry was, was kind of commenting on the fact that, you know, he wished he would have written that Larry script. Larry from the bookstore, not Lawrence Kasdan. <laughs> yeah, Larry from the bookstore. Um, it's Barnes & Noble. Um, well, um, I can tie it to Barnes & Noble also. I was going to throw some cheap trick in at yeah. this point. No, it's Tom Petty. <laughs> Here's some Tom Petty. Um, By the end of the movie, oh, I thought that, I thought you spilled a beer. No, I, I, By the end of the movie, when they're having the conversation about like maybe they'll just kind of make this relationship work, I actually could give two shits if they figure out their relationship, because I've spent a whole movie watching how Charlie Kaufman and Michelle Gondry depict memory and and visually realize what it might feel like. To remember something or to interact with your memories and thus interacting with your inner self. You know what I mean? And if it takes dating, you know, Clementine or Joel to kind of to do that, then, you know, that's what it takes. And I think it's I think it's another way. And we kind of talked we talked about a little bit about like the manic pixie thing off air. I think to do the kind of 2021 cultural justice that people require of movies now would be to do a two a four-hour movie where you're seeing both Clementine's procedure and Joel's procedure simultaneously. But I think just like you know, so you can kind of get a sense I of. You, I don't think I don't think necessarily. Yeah, because you need, you would look you would look need at, a look sense. at how well reviewed Aunt Kind is, like Aunt Kind. Is kind of 
well reviewed for totally different reasons. Though. But it's still told from like that really kind of like limited perspective. But and I think people give. I don't think people think of literature as popular culture. I think literature is kind of a niche thing, and most people aren't going to read. That that's a bummer. Yeah, it is a total fucking bummer. <laughs> but I think most people won't read Antkind. And. But a lot of people have seen at this point Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Is that Mind. why Brady Snellis isn't canceled yet? Brady Snellis isn't canceled yet because nobody knows or gives a shit who Brady Snellis is. <laughs> that's that's a true statement. Is that why like Court McCarthy isn't canceled yet? Or that I mean, I'm because somebody might read, read like Blood Brilliant and be like, "Whoa!" whoa, whoa. I'm I'm literally reading Don DeLillo's uh, Great Jones Street right now, where women are just very casually raped. Uh, he has a whole page where. Oh, he, by the way, it's Underworld. He's talking about constantly in Underland, which makes sense. Oh, yeah, under under under. You could add Underworld to this list also. Um, all the terrible things you could possibly do to a woman. Great Jones Street. It's just like, yeah, people do those things. It's just part of life. You just get over it. You know what I mean? People haven't canceled Don DeLillo yet because well, Don DeLillo doesn't matter anymore. To your point. To piggyback off of that, and, and I and I, and I want to focus this because this is not a movie I have a, a super close relationship with, but I think from an aesthetic standpoint, in the sense of presenting a sense of feeling and a sense of emotion, it works in that literary way really well. Which is literally all I've been literally, which is literally, literally all you've been literarily saying. Which is what I've been saying almost. This whole podcast, you know, what I mean, you, you can track this stuff if you want from movie to movie to movie. You know, every I feel like fifteen movies or so, I have one of these movies that I'm dropping in. Like this movie attaches to this, and all of these things are kind of attached to each other. Where I think one of the closest ones that's the highest up is uh, uh, Twenty Thousand Days on Earth, the Nick Cave documentary, mm. which. Uh, could be about whatever you want it to be about, but to me, is about Nick Cave reconciling, these are the things that my life is supposed to be represented by, and now I'm right here talking about my life. How do I reconcile those things? Do those things feel the same way? Like, do are you pulling the same information out of a picture, out of a painting, out of a some, you know, sculpture I picked up wherever, so this stack of books, this... Like journal, are you perceiving the same things out of it that I'm perceiving? Which is which is interesting because I, I think I think the big difference between you and I in terms of our list is the fact that everything on my list is presented in a way in which film is the only possible way it could be captured, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll talk about it soon enough. Now I'm glad that I chose you as my number to go first. Um, <laughs> You didn't choose me. You won. Right. You defeated me. And fate itself chosen. <laughs> um, you know, where I feel has the visual medium, not the visual medium, but the, the film medium is the only way for it to really work. Yep. And, and, and going off of that, that backbone and you saying this, you know, working off of that kind of like literary perspective with it. Yeah, this movie works in, in every way. Yeah. Um, Yeah, and I've always felt that way. Despite my, like, emotional feeling with it, which isn't much, like, I've always said what Kaufman and Gondry are going for. And I guess I really just say what Kaufman's going for because Michelle Gondry had two films after this to prove himself and 
didn't. I'm going to be honest um, with you. Be Kind Rewind is a fun movie. It's fun. It is not like a, an important movie. I don't think Be Kind Rewind is trying to be anything else. I think I don't I think, think it is Science either. of Sleep is. Though. But I think I think my, Michelle Gondry works best when he's not trying to be profound. Mm-hmm. Because I think Charlie Kaufman is doing all the profound stuff here. And he's just kind of... Doing cool stuff to depict the profundity that Charlie Kaufman is playing I think, out. I think Michelle Gondry is somebody who, with the right screenwriter, would know how to put that screenwriter's oh, yeah. words to image. But you had he's, he's he's no he's not Lee Daniels. But you also meant you mentioned that you thought this movie was kind of directed by Spike Jones before, and I think because of the nature of how he's doing that stuff, it's it smacks more of a Spike Jones film than with the later Michael Gondry, Michelle Gondry, scrapbooker filmmaker yeah, would but, kind of would lead but at towards. But sa- at the same time, I, I, I feel as though Spike Jones is a little more, I guess, not really unsure of himself, but a little more um, finding his footing to where he's not like enforcing his voice on it that Spike Jones would do later with well, like... Where the wild things are, especially with like her, although well, he, I think, co-wrote, he co-wrote her. Right? Yeah, I think so I this. I think Michelle Gondry like is more. Spike Jones has something to say from a from a from a story and thematic standpoint, whereas Michelle Gondry has something to say from a visual standpoint, right. And is willing to do so through somebody else's words. Well, I think Spike Jones would have made a more narratively straightforward film version of this film than Michelle Gondry was. Michelle yeah, Gondry was not worried about the narrative straightforwardness of it or repeating himself or doing any of the other stuff. He just saw, like, Spike Charlie Jones Kaufman movies, wanted this. Right. I will give I will Charlie Kaufman this. Spike Jones will give it in the start best at A way. and end at B. Yeah. That's just where they that's where they go. This movie takes some kind or they start at A and end at Z, and they just they hit all twenty six, you know, twenty four letters in between there in the exact right order. This movie and it's Michelle Gondry movies kind of to, to go quote, crazy. To quote underline by Robert Whatever his last name is, um, uh, McFarlane, McFar- McFarlane, or whatever. It's a it's a blue line versus a B line. Mm. A blue line representing the reason you see ice and snow as blue, like deep ice, is because there's so many ice crystals. Yeah, and so when light reflects, it's going through various different points. It's mm-hmm. really, it's going through so many different points that yeah. the red diffuses, and eventually all that's reflected is the blue. Mm-hmm. It's a line like it, like it, like it, yeah. A lot of that in that book. Ready. I really almost want this podcast to become a book podcast. <laughs> Very much. We have a lot of options. We, we can read Walking with Ghosts. We have I, a lot I'm, of ways to go here, Mario. That would probably get 400 listens. <laughs> a Walking with Ghosts review. Um, yeah, my... Uh, can, can I transition into just my feelings about... I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to piggyback off of... I have 45 more minutes worth of extemporaneous thoughts to share on this movie. No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. Um... No, uh, when I I approached this film in a period of time where I was really narratively driven. Mm-hmm. Um, this is so two thousand four. God, this was the year of collateral and passion of the Christ. Kind of like, <laughs> oh, you you hate collateral, but passion of the Christ. You're I think everybody actually inside themselves hates collateral. They just don't. They don't know it. Another Mark Ruffalo movie. Uh, sure. Let's blame Mark Ruffalo for Ruffalo collateral. For <laughs> um, and so I was, I was really looking forward. I was, I was really in a stylistic, but narratively driven sort of mindset. 
Um, and so when I approached this, like, I 100% kind of attached myself to the narrative. Mm-hmm. And in that way, like, I didn't really connect with it. And I would later see something like Ruby Sparks kind of, like, doing what I thought this movie was trying to do. But, but you, you know, in, in that sort of intent of this loser, not loser guy, but this sort of guy loser who doesn't guy. have, loser, who doesn't have anything to offer putting everything on the shoulders of somebody. So I was looking for that from a narrative standpoint. Yep. And that's why I ended up getting more intrigued by like the stand and Mary thing, because it felt more like a human realistic thing. Well, because honestly, um, if they made a movie starring Jane Adams and David Cross instead of, and, and Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet were like the side characters building the birdhouse or not building the birdhouses. If they made a movie about Jane Adams and David Cross and them fighting about building birdhouses and then they made, oh no, Stan and Mary or Mark Ruffalo. And there's three relationships in this movie, Mario. Yeah. Oh, now I'm confused. Don't you want a movie about David Cross and Jane Adams, though? Wait, that's who you thought I was talking about? I thought that's who you thought we were talking about the whole time, yeah. No, I don't want Mark Ruffalo. Yeah, that's why I was really confused off air when you mentioned that. I was like, they're not married. Well, so that's. <laughs> so that's a, but that's the interesting thing that. About so the entire time off off air, we we're talking. Oh, I said I was more interested in the Mary and Stan relationship. Tom interpreted me talking. But it's, I'm going to be honest with great. you. It's because I don't fucking give a shit about that whole inter well, no, like relationship yeah, it, thing, that, except that, for what it really means for, like um, the image, for like the, the aesthetic only time or, for, the, or conveying a kind of a kind of um, general meaning of what I'm talking. Yeah, about. the only time like the Mary and Stan relationship really matters from a visual perspective is when Joel is kind of frantic and Marion standard jumping over him dancing. Well, but even that stuff is like, but of, it, it's, it works well as like a counteractive sort of, nar- like not, not counteractive sort of visual narrative. See, but I don't even, it's really interesting because I don't even care. The thing that I've always pulled out of the Mary thing is the fact that she's loves quotes. So it's this compartmentalized, uh, set of words that ha- conveys like a ton of meaning. So it's not potatoes and it's not drawings of skeletons with redheaded um, women on them. And it's not journal entries and it's not like CDs that you may have bought together or whatever. She's oper- she functions in quotes. You know what I mean? And what does Stan function and Stan functions in Stan's probably like the least well-drawn character in here because you don't really know what his deal is. Like Patrick, even for the limit of screen time that he gets, he just likes the class. You just know that Patrick is bad with women because he fucking sucks. So all you have to do is look at Elijah Wood on the screen with his sideburns and his shaved head post Frodo, and you're just like, oh yeah, that guy's terrible with women. He needs all the help he can get. Stan's just kind of like a nerd. Stan's like, a nerd, but he's probably but he's uh, a, a nerd who knows who's a confident whatever whatever. Sure, sure, sure. No, no, but, no, and, and um, so I saw this the first time. Like, I I just attached that self to that, but so I never really had a connection with it. But seeing it through the way you're saying it, yeah, it works on on every level. Um, you know, it's not my favorite Kaufman, clearly. Um, Me neither. Yeah. That's where I say, what's your favorite Kaufman? And I was like, oh, right. Um, my favorite Kaufman's is latest Kaufman. My favorite Kaufman is 2020 Kaufman. Portrait of a Lady on Fire. <laughs> my number one. <laughs> um, but no, actually, my favorite Kaufman is, is 
the stuff he put out in 2020. Mm-hmm. Like, both things. But it's funny, those, I mean, the same theme is there as far as I'm concerned. It's all the same movie. But what I think it, what I think it is, is I, res- so the things that work is Kaufman's going for a feeling mm. in, in Eternal Sunshine and Spotless Mind. By the time he's doing I'm Thinking of Ending Things and Ant Kind, he is defending those things with knowledge. But and that's what I respond to. But it's the still fact about he's a like, feeling. this is how it, yeah, he's like, this is how I feel. By the way, if you don't know how I feel, here's a bibliography on things that will explain to you how I feel. But all I, but, and that's that's like that's what I respond. But all to. I want is a bibliography. That's a th- like I would rather read. So there's a really interesting thing Another about High Life. By the way, it's it's a good beer. The, of the, the three beers best. we had today, I yeah, one. I like it. it's the best one. Yeah. You got a good review on this one. I almost, I almost want to have like, I, I almost got twelve of these, and I really wish I had. <laughs> um, I wish Miller had, there was had, a Rick, had the Iron Sheik. Though. There was a Rick Moody story. I, I'm not familiar with Rick Moody. Um, he wrote the Ice Storm. The one, the the Ang Lee one. Yeah. Okay. He wrote the novel that that was based off of. Um, called. That's a lovely sound for our podcast, guys. Me moaning about Rick Moody's stories and you... Just clanging glasses of beer. Oh, ring of the brightest angels around heaven. So there's a Rick Moody story where he literally does a... Um, I, 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 I don't recall the title, but it's in... Um, I'll tell you the, the collection that it's in. It's called... The Ring of Brightest Angels Around Heaven. Um... Where the story is a biblio uh, is a is a kind of a work cited page, and it's got records and TV shows and books and articles and essays and stuff in it, and then those things are annotated with footnotes that tell a kind of uh, narrative about a, about like a, the development of a of a of a person. You know, what I mean, it's just mm-hmm. kind of an, an um, you know coming of age thing, but told primarily through citations. For me, that shit is that's what I want to know, and that's the stuff I respond to. Like, I, that's I respond more to the idea of. So, in something like I'm thinking of ending things, the idea that this stuff means so much to Jake that he's kind of like defined himself by these parameters. I mean, that's fucking gold to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the reasons that's my number one movie of 2020 is that it's just elemental. Yeah. Like, to quote Tom from Tom and Jerry, I'm opening up my chest, Mario. You can see my well, DNA, and there's just stuff running well, around in there. And that's and that's kind of, like, interesting is the fact that, like, it. I agree with you in so many ways. The reason, you know, it's my two is it's elemental, and my one is a feeling. Personal bias. But that's the thing. I wish... Part of me, I wishes, And I wonder if my wife wishes the same thing. That I would feel more about the things that you feel about than the other things. I mean, my wife, if we're having these conversations, I kind of... I kind of take my feelings for her for granted a lot. Because they're so... Just... I don't question them. They're just the way that I feel. They're also elemental, but in a way that like I don't worry about. I definitely worry about... The way that I relate to like a graphic novel, like is my, like what? How has my appreciation of the Sandman collection changed? 
like in the in the twenty years I've been reading. Yeah. How is my relationship to like songs? I mean, so it's been interesting to like have you going through this kind of musical phase you're going through, and me kind of being like, I don't write songs anymore. I don't really listen to very much music anymore, and I'm super cool with it because I've like processed. I've processed the inner. I've processed the way in which those things have defined me to such a fine level. I'm going to blame this podcast for it because, like, I think about this shit all the time. I've processed that stuff down to such a fine level that, like, it just is. It's well, just, it just, I don't, I don't think about music anymore because I don't have to. Well, it's interesting. It's like, you know what I mean? It's like the music, like, so I guess in a way of music's become a thing to me because now I can process how I'm feeling without using words mm. which is fun i can just be yeah like, i can be like here's a beat and i could show it to a particular person and be like how's that make you think yeah 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 no no and that's in because I, I, I don't want to say words but, but that's and i think that's how like when we watch nine days i watch nine days by myself alone at like two in the morning i thought you were gonna say you watched it again i was like how the fuck i did, did watch, you do that? i did watch it again no but i meant like recently i did watch it again recently i told you to fucking join mario I told you to join. Oh, is that, is that available? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I told you to join. And that's too late. It's, it's oh. too late now. I told you to join. On the air, I told you to join. <laughs> I told you to join. I got a whole list of screeners. I got a list. And it's got those curtains and everything. Um, I, like, watched it. And then, I like, made my wife watch it. Because I was like, I hadn't, I couldn't. I haven't been able to. Pro- I haven't lived with it yeah. long enough to process yet. You know what I mean? Um, and so it's it's new. And I think one of the things that is going to be interesting next week is that next week's movie was a movie that like took me a while to process. And I was saying to people like, "Guess what? New person in my life. We're watching Amadeus tonight." Damn it. Ah. <laughs> I did it. You just portrait of a lady on fire all over this. 128-ish. <laughs> um, like we're watching this movie tonight. I, doesn't matter what you think of the fact that we're doing that. Yeah. That's what we're doing. Like, and the, did, they, did anybody cut out? Like, Was that, was that a line for anybody? I don't know. There were definitely people that were less interested in it, but I think that but the less is interested in you because of it. Or? No, they were like, "This is just a movie," and I was like, "No, you don't get it. You don't understand. This is not. I uh, know we're not making out now. We're not doing that's my. That's my three and one. I think I haven't had much experiences with my number one yet. I've had two people with my number one. Mm. Well, it's been tough for your number one because there's not been a lot of opportunities to get people over here to see it. Yeah, um, both of the experiences have been not what I wanted. Yeah, it's, well, so the thing, so I was in in, in many instances, I was like, no, you, like, I'm not doing anything now. I'm doing the thing that we're doing. One time in you response need to, to do my number too. one was Shit's Creek in response, and I was like, okay, and then I was confused. What do you mean? That's an off-air conversation. <laughs> <laughs> now that I've seen Shit's Creek, I have to know what the fuck you're talking about. Um... But yeah, and so I'm, it's, mm, I'm not weird. I'm, I'm kind of beyond, I used to think I was really like a super interesting person. 
I'm kind of beyond thinking that I'm interesting. I just think that I'm myself. And I, I think it's... We're all boring, but we have interesting hobbies. Yeah, and I just think... And I, I definitely think about stuff the way that other people think about stuff. And I think one of the things about these movies that I've, I've put on my list here in this upper thing, and they're going to be all kind of related in a lot of ways, um, is that it's just a thing that I've always thought. It's a thing that I've always felt. I've kept certain feelings. This movie kind of... You know, all the next, you know, this movie yeah. and, and going for, or, or seven to one have kind of all expressed something similar in that I think I always kind of felt this way. And maybe I grew up this way and maybe I was groomed to feel this way by my dad, who was like a record guy and a, and a tape guy. And like all these things were very important and blah, 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 whatever. I've always felt that uh, I've always felt a certain impulse to define myself by things and it's only gotten stronger as i've become more attuned to what that means and how to do that and like for me this podcast has been a really profound experience because that's what we do every week we've been doing it every week for like almost three years like sitting down August 2018 across from each other and just saying like how does this define you how does this film define you as a per- how does Step Brothers define you as a person in how a does- couple weeks this this studio won't have a bed in it that'll be crazy who knows where Larry's gonna sleep after that I know <laughs> um wait your number two has a musicality to it though right oh um, number two I mean I have I have a thousand words ready to go on my number two but it's 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 Muse- I, I haven't watched it once, though. But you're number not two, because all your movies, I've realized, leading up to this, have a real musicality. My number them. two is not so much about music. as Maybe this one isn't not so much. But- no, no. They're all the same in the sense that, like, there's music involved. But it's not about the music, necessarily. It's about the, what there's the a, music could represent. There's also a beat to them. But it's about what the... Right. It's But it's about what it... It's about the way that that stuff is represented in that it's representative of the characters in the film. So my number two was a profound experience and was almost my number one in the sense that when you actually thought it was going to be my number one, um, when the main character kind of has confronted all those aspects of her life and she realizes that like those things are not the life that she's living and life that everybody else is living, like don't match anymore. She's fucking gone. And as someone who comes from just like a certain psychological bent that I do or a certain like autobiographical thing that we will, I will talk about when we get back to my number two, certain autobiographical facts, um, that shit is both informative and profound. The, uh, and it is all these, I think what's interesting about these movies is that they all kind of reference different things. There's no potatoes in my number three, or my number two, or my number one, even though my number five and my number one are written by the same person. There's no potatoes in my number seven, or my number six. You know what I mean? There's no, there's no goofy hipster shit in like the rest of my movies. Really, there's things that go, um, all of the rest of them kind of go beyond like hipsterism and go to like the totally uncoolness of of. Well, of hipster of hipster culture, but all of them have feelings. All of them have feelings, but they're all the feelings are contained within the thing. Yeah, which is funny because all of my movies coming up 
outside of my three and one are devoid of that. But that's but it's interesting because we've always kind of gone opposite directions in this. Relationships don't mean the same thing to me as they so all a lot of my movies coming up are relationship movies. But the relationships are not why I gravitate towards those those movies. I think those the relationships work in those movies to me in juxtaposition to the other feelings. And I think that's intentional in those films in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I think the idea is that we're supposed to we're supposed to regard the relationship between Joel and Clementine in two ways. We're supposed to regard it as a relationship between a male and a female coexisting man and woman. Man and woman, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um coexisting and whatever that means. Whatever the stereotype of a man and a woman, you know, being in a relationship means. But in another way, it's a it's a the whole film is a conversation about the things that make you you and the things that exist underneath that relationship that aren't necessarily talked about when you're talking about like a a, a hair on a soap or whether or not to have kids or if the chicken is good or you know um any of the conversations that people have rolling around under under covers that are sensually lighted yeah um there's so many things going on underneath that have nothing to do with anything, but also everything to do with it because it's who you are and they're different and they're different people. You know I mean? Clementine's apartment looks totally different than Joel's apartment. You know what I mean? They have different value systems. They have different personalities and those value systems and personalities are defined by the things that they, the things that they value, the things that they interact with, the things that they create. In a lot of ways, they're both creators. Clementine is a potato diorama maker, I guess, and, and, and Joel is an artist in some way. I think as a as a writer, one of the things that I kind of took away from this movie just watching it again was the idea that like the undefined nature of certain aspects of their life, that Joel, we don't know what Joel's job is. Clementine works at Barnes & Noble. She's worked there for a long time, but what's her, what's her position? How can, can she afford her apartment at Rockville Center, which is like a, a nice apartment, whatever, blah, 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 blah. That shit doesn't really matter. That's just, just one small sliver of who they are as a, as, a, as a person. You know what I mean? All of these, I think in a lot of movies, the relationship is the main thing. Yeah. It defines who they are. Is defi- Who they are is defined by their relationship. I think in some of the, the ways that I interact with these movies that it's just one, the relationship is just one piece. The relationship is just another record. It's another piece of art. It's another book. It's another whatever. You know what I mean? It's another potato. I keep going back to the potatoes because the potato thing is so weird. Um, it's, I think, the thing that Ari Aster was trying to do with Tony Collette and her diorama making. Her diorama art and hereditary. And she's like, oh, I make these cool dioramas. Like, but why? And, and they never like answer the question why her art is... <laughs> making dioramas but that's the thing it's because it runs it's it's distracting because it runs contrary to everything else we've seen in the film there's no there's no narrative or even subtextual reason for her to make dioramas there's totally a reason for her to make potatoes even if it's just even if it's just like a charlie kaufman kind of conceit to kind of define her as a thing as a weirdo you know what i mean there's still a reason for it 
just like there's a reason to go to a Florida fast food place and get some food and drink. Is that in reference to something? Yeah, kind of. Because <laughs> he's so obsessively good there. Right? That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I'm going to read Ankind again at some point. Maybe next year. After I finish my MFA, I'll read Ankind again. I don't have my copy anymore. Where is it? A, Did you burn it ritually? It's at a person's house who's been slowly reading it over a year. You can't slowly read it. You have to consume it. Yeah, that's my opinion. I think it's everyone's opinion. Um, that's my number My number five. <laughs> Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. If you want a really exciting conversation in the same emotional sense about number five, we'll join you after the break. It will be. <laughs> it sure will be. Welcome back. I always love when I can do that. Um, I have talked a lot about, in this podcast, about the influence of Asian cinema and in terms of cinema outside of kind of the Western view, really shaping my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still think that's overall, from a, a real perspective, a, a very minuscule sort of sort of vision of film. I, I think that there's a whole plethora of film I haven't been exposed to. Um, mm-hmm. But I have learned from from i've always been appreciative from a young age having a real respect and a real adoration for asian cinema and having that that opened up to me um my number five was kind of the the film that that set that course uh i will be forever grateful to my 10th grade teacher Uh who did a because for some reason in nevada history and english See, it's where I wish I had switched. I wish I had just switched for, like, symmetry purposes, because it was also, like, a school thing for my number four. Uh, we would have been, like, off by, like, a grade in a year, and it, it would have... Ah, damn it. Sorry, continue. So in 10th grade, um, 10th or 11th? 10th or 11th? One of those two. Uh, don't know if that's going the right direction for you. Um... There was a Shakespeare course mm-hmm. that I had. Uh, Shakespeare and history at the same time. And unfortunately, those things didn't match up mm-hmm. at all. So we'd be dwelling deep into Shakespeare while discussing various tenets of history that were not connected. Mm-hmm. And we ran the gamut. I, I talked about this in the podcast with um, Roman Polanski's Macbeth being one of the, the films featured. Mm-hmm. Um and I loved Roman Panthers Macbeth. We also saw, you know, Mel Gibson's Hamlet. Which is a choice. <laughs> we saw Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet too, which is solid. Yeah, I like that one. It's not doing too much. It's very it seems like the kind of definition of what you'd want people expect Shakespeare to be. Yeah. Um we would see But with too much Robin Williams. Boz Lerman's Romeo and Juliet, which is fine. We'd also see the nineteen sixties Romeo and Juliet, which is also fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched Titus Adronicus, which almost made the list here. Like it. Julie Taymor. Julie, Julie Taymor, Taymor, yeah. Um, and eventually I took the same, a similar course in college, which would show a lot of those movies again, and I'd be introduced to Ethan Hawke's Hamlet there. Which, which is, is also a thing. Which is much better than Mel Gibson's Hamlet. Yeah. Um, but the one movie I saw would open up 
so many doors for me. Uh, it would open the doors for me to like really in in combination with Roman Polanski's Macbeth, uh-huh. respect Shakespeare as kind of a modern voice, mm-hmm. but also in the same way realize that he has his place in time and that modern voices could bring him to the foreground. Mm-hmm. More importantly, though, this film would open up the doorway to me to be like, oh, you know, being a high school student at that age my perspective was kind of limited to the Paul Thomas Anderson late 90s films, the Mm -hmm. Quentin Tarantino. I'm still considering myself a film sort of person, but I was very limited with like Tarantino. But you had to do the things you had to do. Paul Thomas Anderson. And I think that was was the big two, honestly, for me at the time. At the time, yeah, maybe. Boogie Nights. um, And like Boogie Nights and... Jackie Brown were like the the movies, mm-hmm. the modern movies. Um, and and this would kind of like open the doorway to me to look into things like Takeshi Miyake, mm-hmm. and which you know say we will about him, but it would open up a doorway to me to be like, oh, expand beyond the parameters sure. of yeah, the yeah. moment. Um, this is to me the greatest telling. Of a Shakespeare tale, I think this is um, the one movie I can look at and say, uh, while I respect Shakespeare, I love Shakespeare, uh, for the most part, um, The Tempest sucks. Go fuck yourself, Tempest. Well, there's there's tons of Shakespeare that's. But everyone loves The Tempest, but The Tempest is. I don't really like The Tempest. Um, this this elevates it to a modern level. Uh, the, the visually is, is stunning. I, I texted you yesterday while I was rewatching this and said it is the best modern film. Mm-hmm. Um, and I use the parameter of modern film as the spectacle. Mm. The post-1975 Jaws using all of the elements of film. We talked about this earlier with Eternal Sunshine uh-huh. of combining all those forces. And I created a really base definition of the perfection of film being the combination of forces for an intent by which you can only succeed through the medium of film and i feel as though this movie is the perfect example um in modern cinema Mm -hmm. in that post sort of jaws world where spectacle becomes paramount um it is the 1985 Best Picture winner because Out of Africa didn't exist and this movie somehow got nominated and won and then also the one Best Director, but well, it didn't. We talk about that, yeah. We're not going to talk about it. Out of Africa sucks. Um, no, no, no. Just the idea that like out of all of the... But it's also it's also a real thing because of Japan playing a big role. Sure, in sure, it. sure. But I just love the idea that there's like so many filmmakers of his ilk that people compare him to that like never even sniffed an Academy Award and... Movies that he like in movies that they made never won them or yeah. whatever, and movies that he has made and he have won multiple Academy Awards. Yeah, um, it is the adaptation of King Lear. Ran.
He de Toro's had a dream, and he's decided to divide his kingdom amongst his three sons, Toro, Jiro, and Saburo. Um, he is going to give his eldest son, Toro, the first castle, and his two sons, the second and third castle, but they will support them. And to present this allegory, he will present a arrow and break that arrow. But then he will present three arrows and try to break it. And Toro and Jiro will try to break it and they will fail. And Saburo will break it upon his knee. Literally one of the best modern, the best way of bringing how much do you love me from King Lear mm-hmm. up to the modern age. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is weird because it's not modern at all. It's not. Like, but, it's, but the film is... But from a visual... Right, right, right. Film perspective. Um, so Burrow's like, go fuck yourself, dad. And <laughs> he, the Toro, being a real shithead, because he's a warlord of every sorts, mm-hmm. says, you're banished. And so is um, Tango. Tango, who says like, whoa, <laughs> the Toro, you're being a little bit rash. Uh, he's also banished, and they, they roam off. Um... And, you know, Hidetoro's ready to represent his elder years, living with his cabal of 30 warriors. Um, his concubines. His, his concubines and his, <laughs> his fool. <laughs> when I first saw this movie, I fucking hated Peter. Uh-huh. But, like, Peter, like, um, has Kayomi. Yeah. Like, is such an integral part of his insanity. That I never realized before. Mm-hmm. Well, there's something very Greek about the way that he Absolutely. uses. He's a chorus. He's yeah. a chorus. Um, which is not. Which is, I guess, somebody would argue that it's present in the Shakespeare, but I feel like it's more present here. Oh, absolutely. Well, this is like a thousand different Shakespeare plays like thrown into one. I feel like it's all the plays. Yeah. Like. <laughs> well, speaking of which, so. Hidetoro kind of like takes. Refuge with his, um, I can't remember, not his great, great lord title uh-huh. in, in the home of his, his elder son, Toro. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, Toro is married to Lady uh, Cade, Cade, uh, who, you know, her entire family was murdered by Hidetoro, and mm-hmm. she's not a big fan of him. No, uh, she's Hidetoro, not. Not at all. She, uh says so in not such indelicate terms. And so Hidetoro is eventually thrown out. He tries to seek refuge with Jiro, his son, and he realizes his second son, he also realizes he's kind of thrown out there and he's kind of left wandering. He eventually tries to take refuge in the third castle. It turns out it's a big siege against him by Mm -hmm. his two sons. And all everyone in his uh, confluence is murdered, including mm-hmm. his concubines, who kind of like futilely sacrifice themselves. Yep. Um, and he's left kind of wandering the lands insane um, until he realizes that, that Saburo's kind of out there to support him, mm-hmm. to to who truly did love him. He's saying, you know, you can't trust us because you were a warlord, because mm-hmm. you represented these ideas you can't trust us to be better than that mm-hmm. um 
And so, you know, he starts he starts feeling better about himself, but unfortunately his oldest son, Toro, is murdered <laughs> by Jiro's head in command, and Lady Kadi kind of, like, says, you know what? Toro was whatever. I'm just going to get with Jiro now, and there's some fun stuff that happens there. Uh, she plays 4D chess. Um, things get to a point where eventually there's this battle between the forces of Jiro and Saburo and Hidatori. Um, Jiro and uh, Saburo die. Hidatori in his grief also dies. And the world is kind of left in this natural state of disaster. The scroll of Buddha as presented by Lady Sue to her blind brother is in the very last shot kind of falls off the ledge and mm-hmm. tumbles upon the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, this is in... Oh, man. I, I remember when I watched this when I was 16, just being awestruck in ways I didn't understand, in ways where I needed to... Was this your first Kurosawa? my first curse. Uh, awestruck in ways where I just I didn't I didn't get it mm. I didn't know why I was watching these things mm-hmm. and I haven't watched this movie in five or six years mm-hmm. um, and there's a real nice this, this is what I love about this podcast is the mm-hmm. fact that like we've dwelled deep into everything yep to where even like five or six years ago where I was like I kind of get it and I'd seen Seven Samurai you know I'd seen like a most of um, Kurosawa's filmography to where I kind of like felt it, but I couldn't articulate it. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, just re-watching this, I get it. I get it in like every way. Like, like the precipice of everything building upon you know, Lady Cotty's monologue to Taro, where she says, like, you know, like, I took you in as my spouse and my father and brothers let their guard down and just um what's her name miko haradas like who should have been nominated this year but the 80s of course and the that would have were... never happened yeah, yeah, yeah. and had this movie come out this year like 100 she would have been probably a frontrunner yeah, yeah <laughs> um yeah. like where her vo- her like face just kind of falls flat and she's like and he massacred them you know um, you know, leading into that, that 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 scene before the great battle with Tango and the Fool, where Tango says, you know, you know, the Fool's kind of like to be holding upon himself with Hidatoro kind of like throwing him to the ground, and they're sitting upon this like empty, barren landscape, and he says, and yet all we ever did was tell the truth. Yep. Like the two, like the Fool always telling, you know, Peter playing um, Kiyomi. I can never say that character's name. Yep. Um, because you just, I think of him as the fool the yeah, whole time. Yeah, His exactly. name is not important to me. Doesn't matter. Um, everything he's doing is never mean. It's always just saying, like, be better. Yeah. And the fact when he's just crying and they're on the landscape and he's just like, and then all we ever do is tell the truth. And it leads up to just what has to be one of the, if not the greatest, like, battle scene ever. The guns, um, yeah. The mixture of the guns. It, it, it is. It is a combination 
uh, Sam Peckinpah, Sergio Leone, um, Andre Tarkovsky, um, not Tarkovsky, um, why the fuck am I forgetting his name right now? Um, Battleship Potemkin. Oh, uh, Eisenstein? Eisenstein. You know, like, like the guns leaning down on the... Well, it's funny. There is you... nothing that speaks so much to the Eisenstein thing as the guns leaning down on the walls of the third castle, on the floors and shooting. You know what I kind of kept thinking when I was watching it this most recent time was about those, um, Civil War movies that were really popular in, like, the, the, like, the 90s, like, um, Glory and Gettysburg. Yeah. Where gods and monsters. They talked about the gods like, and monsters. Gods and gods gen- generals. Gods and generals was, was after all those things. But it was like yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. It was the same thing. Back yeah, exactly. Um, when they would talk about like flanks, and they would show like lines of soldiers in the woods, like just kind of like protecting their their uh, adva- their terrain advantage. You know what I mean? Like the they have the upper slopes yeah. of shit. But it seemed so much more. When you were watching that movie, you kept thinking, like, tactically? When you were watching those movies, you would think tactically. When you're watching this movie, you're thinking, like, what does it represent, like, to the history of whatever land this is that these guys might make this work? You know what I mean? There's so much more to every military decision mm. that happens in Ran other than, like, this is a military decision. It's not a military decision. It's a... It's a fucking heritage decision it's a it's a i don't know it's like it's just it's, so it's so much fucking deeper while, than they were in the woods um here while i watch this it's not so much strategy or yes strategy is a good word as it is a decision of meat mm. and the reason i say meat meat m-e-a-t or m-e-e-t m-e-a-t like like yeah um is the fa- i think the way it works here is there's a bit of an artifice to it at mm-hmm. first. The blood runs too red. It's sometimes it's very thick. It sometimes is really thick, but sometimes it's streaming down like a waterfall. Yep. And eventually, near the end of that sequence, where it's just music with no sound effects, mm-hmm. you see the body burning in the, the body's burning in the tower, mm-hmm. and it has this real like come and see Schindler's List esque come feel, and see. yeah, yeah, um, of naturalism to it and this film bleeds like with naturalism like the, almost like the, too much at times but continue no, but i think that's like king lear has that intent of, of the natural world the the hobbesian brutish world versus this thomas morian kind of like idealized thing mm-hmm. um which is you know i think thomas more postdates shakespeare but he's always kind of dealing with the idealized versus the real mm-hmm. um well shakespeare invented the human so he did uh, <laughs> but the thing that works so well in that sequence is like it's so idealized and so fictionalized early on that it has such theatricality to it as i said the kind of eisenstein kind of like laying down of the guns he, you know the the over performance of um the one uh, battle the battalion member who's kind of like speaking to Hidatori with the arrows in his back and eventually then decides to die. Yeah. You know, it, it all bleeds into that scene where you see the men in the tower on fire. Yeah, like you've yeah. seen them before and they're laying over the tower top bloodied in a theatrical way, but when they're on fire, it bleeds it down and it bleeds it down perfectly into that moment where Toro's just kind of like sitting there 
like surveying the scene and then it gets shot and you get to, like that spray of you know the theatrical kind of like two red blood but yep. that he just quickly falls and you don't get too much of it it's just it's really it's a it's a real yeah, quick yeah, yeah. shot of it and then you know the sound effects well, all come the, in all the and blood everything. comes later yeah, yeah yeah and all the sound effects come in then and then the battle becomes real yeah um and that's the thing is is this movie is such a perfect control of vision and of an idealized vision of, of, of intent versus this kind of like real naturalized world of violence and grit. Well, it's interesting. I mean, it's the, your words, your word choices are, um, I think really significant in the sense that it's naturalized is a interesting word to describe this movie in the sense that so much of the film takes place outside and I think like volcanic flats and whatnot. But which, I think what I think Throne of Blood did right, like Throne of yeah, Blood yeah. took place on that. But Throne of Blood flats. also had lots of. Um, it was much more intimate. This movie is so big, and it almost seems like you know, like a not like Shakespeare in the Park, but it almost seems like a old school Shakespearean presentation where Shakespeare and his actors would kind of roam the land like the English countryside and set up shop out right outside of towns in like fields or whatever and put on plays and John Madden was 10 feet away directing it. Yeah, sure. Um, it has that kind of feel to it where it's just, he just stumbled upon some hill and was like, this is the perfect place which to is, shoot this. But which, because, like, this movie is a mixture of, like, the, a Shakespearean retelling and sort of, like, an historical. Sure. But what I find fascinating about it is the fact that he spent, like, ten years storyboarding this whole movie in those classic, fantastic Kurosawa storyboards. Um, so I've, never, I've never seen those. Oh, just, I mean, if you look online first, I mean, they're just, they're fucking amazing. But they're also... Um, he had this whole movie in his head. So there's what seems very naturalistic also simultaneously sometimes seems a little too planned. So we're Throne of Blood, I think, which is my preferred mm. shit. So it's like Throne of Blood, this, other stuff. And they're they're very, they're like rubbing right up against each other. Well, yeah, it's, what is he have? He has that one other one. And I'm not even saying just like Kurosawa doing Shakespeare. I mean Shakespeare adaptations. It's oh, yeah. Throne of Blood, this, Whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, Throne of Blood seems much Throne more... Throne of Blood, this, ten things I hate about you. Yeah, yeah. Throne of Blood seems much more like... Um, is that... Is that that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, the Taming of the Shrew. Right? I think so. Yeah, I, I keep forgetting Taming of the Shrew. I always forget Taming of the Shrew and Turning of the Screw, or whatever, or Ooh. the Henry James thing. Turning of the Screw is good. Yeah. Um, is it good? I don't like it. It actually... It's... I like it. I like Henry James, though. Um... But so this our movie, next podcast. So, <laughs> I got a guy that we can we can call. I got a couple of Chris Chris Gardner who's been a, on this show. He's a Henry James guy. I almost feel like we write enough stuff where we could just like really get into just a random book and just argue with each other for an hour about it. Let's do it. I'm ready. Um, Throne of Blood seems much more. Unintentional. 
I think the uncontained? it seems uncontained is a good one, even though it's contained. Accident, accidental, unintentional. I don't know. There's it seems looser. Yeah, yeah. And maybe that's like the spiritual. Accidental? There's like the spiritual element that's accidental kind of tourist. Yeah, accidental tourist. How oh, we got we got back there. Oh, my number four is the accidental tourist again. It's on there twice. Um, no one knows that they made a sequel to The Accidental Tourist. Um, Directed by us. It seems like when the hail... There's no hail of arrows here. I mean, there is. But there's no scenes like the hail of arrows scene in Throne of Blood. Where um, Toshiro Mifune is just kind of dodging arrows when he's not getting shot in the chest and the back yeah. and whatever by arrows. The way that looks, the way that feels, the way that functions, everything here is very controlled. You know what I mean? Like, to the nth degree. And it, I think Kajamusha, I've always been like a, so my problem, so you texted me that thing about like, this is the best modern movie, and it fucking blew my mind. In a sense, in a good way. In a sense that I was like sitting up at night being like, how do I, like, what is the, what are my list of like the best modern movies like with using this, especially criteria. when I was able to like define it. Well, as soon as you defined it, I was like, "Well, now that's a big problem for me." You know what I mean? Because like when it's just like it could be anything, like you can use any criteria. But when using like Jaws and like the spectacle thing, like well, that's kind of like a that's very specifically like a war movie from like a modern film perspective. You know what I mean? It's it's just kind of gotta be one of these very specific movies. It's not gonna be Saving Private Ryan, and it's not gonna be any of like the later Spielberg things. So it's inherently going to be one of these Kurosawa things. I've always really loved Kajimusha. I've had it's just so weird and like different um from like all the other kind of Kurosawa things. I Ran seems very Kurosawa to me, where Kajimusha seems like it's taking like more it's taking more chances. Um in a lot of ways maybe he's more desperate at that time, and I know everyone kind of talks about Kajimusha as being like a trial run for the stuff he was going to do in Ran, but Kajimusha seems more of a film to me, where Ran seems more of like real. He just filmed some people doing this in real life, um, in, in like the best possible way I, you can mean that. Okay, to be honest, I hate these interpretations of what an epic. I, I hate to say the word "user" word "epic," but like of what history defines as a great filmmaker like oh what was the intent at the point i hate this i hate it too because like, 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 like tarkovsky like we're talking about like what was tarkovsky doing with mirror was he doing with um well because what the fuck the, the his, his second to last film the one on the island nostalgia nostalgia is that the one i'm thinking of maybe i'm thinking of the other one um but anyways like what was the intent and like the, the constraints by which he had I hate this. Well, I hate it too. And I think the problem is that like they they all come I want to think about it just for myself. So in when I'm thinking about it for myself, like Tarkovsky Stalker does not Stalker was the movie that kind of jumped to mind when you said when you set the parameters Jaws. Jaws I mean Stalker works. Yeah. Stalker is the one that comes to mind, but Stalker doesn't work. Because Stalker is not a spectacle. Mirror is not a spectacle. Nothing post Stalker is spectacle in Tarkovsky's like oeuvre. I would, I would give Stalker. But it's not the... It doesn't function the same I mean, level. Even, even if it, like, 
exist before Jaws. I think like, but it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't. No, I know, but like, but at the same time, something like. 2001 could work as modern movie. But if it, even if you think of, but I just want to think of those from those parameters. Like if you, even if you think of, it has to be Seven Samurai is the one that comes closest in pre, like Jaws. If we're just using Jaws arbitrarily as the delineation yeah. like thing here, of course I was. Um, well, Jaws being worked. a thing where like story is. Secondary meets, to, but story, but it also kind of meets this larger scale aesthetic idea. Yeah. You know what I mean? Which is to excite you. And he didn't do that a lot after a certain period. I mean, he didn't do anything after 1965 except for like the f- six movies that he did, and they're all relatively small, except for Kajimusha and, and Ran. Um, but Seven Samurai is so. What's what act? What acts like Seven Samurai? And Kajimusha does, and Ran does, and Kajimusha. I prefer Kajimusha, and Ran is what it is. Well, I've only seen Kajimusha once, to be fair. When Kajimusha is is so, so your your Ran thing here kind of upsets the balance of my existence because there was a period where, and I'm not saying this to be cool. I'm saying this to say that I had a problem. I owned every single Kurosawa movie that was available to be owned on DVD because I hated my existence and I tried to fill the holes in my life with uh, expensive DVDs. And also crippling debt. That's just what comes when you try to fill your hole with your life with expensive DVDs, Mario. (laughs) This is one of the same thing. Um, But I remember Kajimushu was more interesting but Ran, like, fucks you up. Because Ran doesn't feel like art. Even while it feels like art. When they murder um, Kaeda, or whatever her name is. I, I mean, we neither of us speak Japanese. I don't even know what the English L- translation of whatever it is. Yeah. And it just is a rain of blood. It's, but it's background. also, like, not the shot I want it to be. You know what I mean? Like, you know what there's none of in Ran? Classic shots. There are no... No, there's there's classic shots... There's classic... Completely out of time. Right. There's classic shots from the 1920s. There's classic shots... Which is weird about this movie. This movie speaks in the silent era. Like, right. the shots in this movie exist 60 years before this movie took place. But when you when you look at... So I'm looking at the sight and... I've got the sight and sound list up on my thing. Ran is not on the sight and sound, the 2012 list. Jesus Christ. There's a bunch That's, of... Kur- so also, I'll, by the way, we have to keep this podcast up because that is coming next year. I know. I'm very excited for it. Um, so the highest... Seven Samurai is the highest Kurosawa on here, which is which is fine. I mean, it's too low at 17, but whatever. Is Kajimushu on there? I guess... No, 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 no. Throwing a bullet? Uh, we can do Rashomon's twenty six. We can do a quick look here. I was great about Rashomon. I don't know why Rashomon never spoke to me. We did it on my thing. Yeah, we did, but I but I talked about that when I watched it. I was like, I like it, but Blade Runner is on here sixty nine. Oh. <laughs> sixty nine below the third right one. Oh no! It's Blade Runner is six. Oh yeah, it's sixty nine. Tied for sixty nine. The third man is seventy three. Mario, so your list stinks. Um, <laughs> excuse me, sir. Is the third man on. It's the third man on my list. 
<laughs> no 11.4% beers. Um, no, that's it. After Rashomon, that's it. Got it. Um, so, the point being, I think, that... I think to your point is that Ran seems to kind of exist outside of all existence. Ran almost seems like the anti-film. It's told with almost the complete lack of sets, except for like, you know, those very interior shots and then like these exterior things. But I think one of the interesting things about Throne of... If you juxtapose Throne of Blood, which is the movie I know best with Ran, they spend a lot of time inside fortresses in Throne of Blood. You spend very little time inside these castles in in uh, Ran. You know what I mean? He's either well, on you the spent, outside of them, or there's a battle going on. Well, you've also of spent it. a lot of time inside fortresses, but outside in Throne of Blood, right? Unlike Black, whatever the fuck that is. I love it. Clean. Love Throne of Blood. Um, this movie seems like a non-movie. Does this does this movie also though not seem like? I watch Ran and look at it as like an update of what he was trying to do with Throne of Blood. Because there's so much time spent on the volcanic flats. Lady Kaje is... Uh, K- K- I'm sorry. We're guys. doing it. That's fine. We're doing good. Lady Macbeth. Yeah. <laughs> she's Lady Macbeth. Lady is, Macbeth is, but in King Lear. But she's there. Yeah. Like, that's not in Lear. Mm-hmm. Like, it feels like as though he's like trying to do that again and bring it to the forefront. Well, it feels like it... I think the no... The, the presence of the no theater stuff... You could with me taking this last highlight. Yeah, yeah. The presence of the no theater stuff in here I think is really telling in the sense that Good I don't think... Good beer conversation during... Yeah. I... That was weird. I think I just... What did I do? What did you do? Hello? 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 That was weird. I'm back. What oh. happened? It's explosion. explosion. Um Yeah, it seems like he's telling like an all story. We used to use this conversation we used to use this term when me and my, my buddy were talking about like music. We'd call something like the all something, like the all song. What, what buddy? What? What buddy? This guy Carl. Um I'm not familiar with Carl. We, I have not been friends with him for a long time. Oh. Um, he objected to me being in the joint earners. It's a long story. I'm not going to talk about it now. Because I could talk about it forever. Because of Chris? <laughs> kind of, yeah. Um, <laughs> we could... So we would use this term called like the all song. Like the song that represented like all songs. In a lot of ways, I think Ran is like an all film. Mm-hmm. Where it kind of touches... Kind of touches Kurosawa's whole career is representative of a lot of aspects of that career. References a lot of movies. It's probably super important for him to put like a character like her in here. If you just look at some of those movies that we've talked about on our list, Throne of Blood, the Lady Macbeth character, Rashomon, the woman that would talk to could talk to the spirits. You know what I mean? Yeah. That was kind of above the the the. The, the dead, you know, that would that was communicating for the dead. The woman that was above all the fucking shit that was happening in this movie, or in the uh, in the movie, like everything was like very low down and kind of like meaningless. But like the idea that there's a spirit talking, 
makes it so much more meaningful. Like that's the shit that got Rashomon kind of inside my gut was it's not about murder, like from a body to body standpoint. It's about like murder from a representation standpoint. And that's what I think is important about something like Ran is that her character here is not just about like Hidetora wants to make it just about land and power. And she's like, it's not a, it can't ever just be about land and power. It has to be about all of these bigger things. Which is, and one of those bigger things is love, which is what Subaru, um, uh, what's, what do you pronounce his name? Saburo is representative of, you know what I mean? Like it's it's also, it's also really great in the scene with the fool where like you see Hidetoro kind of like going insane and he and the fool represents kind of like the narrative well the fucking great makeup work as mm-hmm. it goes through the entire movie yep um it represents like that out out damn spot from like Macbeth where you know the fool's kind of like saying like all these people you've killed coming back onto you mm-hmm. which is not a thing from Lear at all no um which is like this perfect marriage like 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 Kurosawa was one hundred percent always in control of his narrative, and mm-hmm. it it just is such you know regardless of if you're talking about Throne of Blood or if you're talking about Ran or if you're talking about whatever, like the fact that he knew what he wanted to be said is always so great. Well, that's I mean I I think Kurosawa is really. If, if had, I could bring one director back from the dead, and maybe like have to I don't be know, alive his, for like his life years. was hard for like forty <laughs> for like forty years. I if if he could he could, I'd give him my bedroom, the bedroom downstairs. He'd have probably have a big problem with it. <laughs> He'd probably have a big problem with it. Um, <laughs> I would, I would, he would I need would, Russian backers to get you him a better bedroom. You think so? I'd just be like, I, I'd just. Burp, I, we live in New Haven. I'd just be like, hey, ladies, this is Akira Kurosawa. Yeah, and then Colin McEnroe would be over here in like one second and be like, so Akira Kurosawa. <laughs> just punch him in the face. Have you eaten New Haven pizza yet? What do you think is the best pizza? That's what you need. Get John Dankosky back. Um, Are you saying I could not? How dare you? <laughs> No, no, please tell me what if, I... If I brought Kurosawa back to life, I'm sure I could wingman him into a happy existence. Oh, I don't know. He was very sad. Was he, was he married? I don't know, but he, like, right... Was it before Kajimusha or before this, he tried to kill himself? Well, he wasn't married. Aww. His life sucked for a long time. Well, I'd also try to bring his wife back, and then they could live happily. Yeah. But I think it's he is he is I think between him That's and like such a it's such a good fucking it's too much of an autobiography like autobiography yeah but it's such a good one oh yeah it's great I mean it explains so <laughs> when much of that explaining dogs so get cut in half I tune out but well I think just him kind of walking through when he was uh, with uh, the fencing lessons when yeah. he was going to the fencing lessons and he kind of walked through these towns and he's. And his shoes and stuff, and then after, um, do we do we both agree Kurosawa is possibly the best director we've talked about? I was literally just going in that direction. Yeah. Is that I think when you take his career as a whole, because he always made very like intentional films, 
I don't see any way that he's not. But I kind of also want to hug him. I do too. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the art. What's the argument? I think it's for me. And this is coming a little late, and I, like I, I, I'm going to spend the next ten years thinking about this. I feel like it's like a Tarkovsky Kurosawa duel in my mind, and Kurosawa is like number one. My problem with Tarkovsky was he was self-destructive. Kurosawa was also very self-destructive. But, I mean, he tried hard, and he didn't get a fair shake because he existed in a very like Russia kept funding Tarkovsky movies, but, even when he was critical of of. I almost, I must, I must wonder if. We should not put this on podcast, but I'll say it. Why? Because we're gonna assassinated. I almost feel like Tarkovsky wanted to die. Mm, that's interesting. Why? I just feel like he was going to always present his movies, no matter what. I guess, and like the stalker entire incident of like, oh, you know, let's go out there, no matter what, no matter what, on set location thing, car, car cancer causing, yeah, carcinogen. Whereas Kurosawa was like. Had an intentionality to him, and was still well, ultimately mean, a filmmaker. I think the point and it's, it's not like a, it's not like a saying a Tarkovsky's a worse filmmaker, but it's saying like Kurosawa had. Oh my god, this is the worst thing I'm ever no, going to no. say on this podcast. Kurosawa had more of a vision, so he felt like he had more to live for. Here's this. How about this? If we're saying that Harold. <laughs> If we're gonna, you heard what I just said, right? I did, and yeah. I'm gonna kind of like ignore it, but also kind of talk to it. If we're saying that Harold Bloom, if we operate under the assumption that Harold Bloom was like correct, I'm doing air quotes here, that like Shakespeare invented the human. Really? I think if, that's what he said. The invention of the human is Harold Bloom's famous Shakespeare book. Harold Bloom's a fucking idiot. Harold Bloom is kind of an idiot, but he's also kind of like. A great genius writer and thinker but like, about into- but the kill lava, like the entire finished like creation story, or but I think, and all that. What, so we've much, talked about this before. Yeah, one of the things that I always whatever. respond to in Harold Bloom is the fact that he's like really passionate about things that most people kind of aren't very passionate about. They like them a lot and they appreciate them and they think about them really fucking hard. But he's just like, no, this is the best. I'm not too familiar. With it. This is an off-air conversation. Um. So I'll move to an on-air No, no, I'm saying this is an off-air conversation to dwell oh, okay, into. Yeah. I think one of the interesting well, things that Kurosawa does... because seems... I'm going to do it. Yeah! I think one of the interesting things that Kurosawa does... Next is week, no. He seems... <laughs> he seems the most in tune with Shakespeare's themes. So mm-hmm. Shakespeare Absolutely. invented the human. It took 400 years and Kurosawa to analyze... 350, come on. Whatever, I'm just rounding. It's just loose podcast drunk math. Bring it down. Um, It took Kurosawa that many years to kind of process it and and think about what it meant historically, not just in the context of like whatever was happening culturally at that very moment. Yeah. I'm looking at all of you Julius Caesars, Julius Caesar uh, producers, that just stuck Trump in as Julius Caesar or just stick whatever, like, president or oh world God. leader in as Julius Caesar. You know what I mean? Shakespeare um, into divided America. Or... Writer. What the fuck was his name? Even... Is, is punching the ground. Right, right. Or even the people that kind of do Merchant of Venice from... And I appreciate those things. I think they're really Mercurio, interesting. Mercutio, sort of, like, his... From a Holocaust standpoint. You know what I mean? Oh, from, like, a persecution of the Jews standpoint, which I think are much more valid. Kurosawa seems to like mine those Shakespearean themes for a kind of um, 
universality hmm. that he can somehow is able to convey through this very Japanese cinema. Because he's, he's very he's Japanese. He has two two intentions. But even it's funny because they so the Japanese after a certain point of time seem to outwardly reject him because it's too western but he yeah. still kept going back to he was too western but he operated fully in in i guess i'm assuming so from like a very western unknowledgeable person he operated in those jap in, in a very japanese world in a world that almost it's hard to understand but through his films I would, I would you assume. can almost understand them i'm so what i'm saying is that through his films you can understand some of the themes that shakespeare was was alluding to better and better than like Titus and you know Julie Tamor's Titus Andronicus adaptation better than like Branagh's Hamlet adaptation you know complete Hamlet adaptation way fucking better than like any of Laurence Olivier's abridged Shakespeare things um sad Mario Hamlet noises yeah I mean I I mean those were rev- those were revelations to me in the sense that like having to think about them I was like this is not what I want from a mm. Hamlet but I do want a Lear who has given up not just like a land but given up a culture has given up a not just a name but giving up a way of being and then not only is he giving that way of being up, but he's asked to, in real time, confront that way of being. Yeah. So he's not just confronting like the nature of himself and his family, but he's also confronting the nature of like what it means to be... I don't know, I'm not going to say a warlord, but what it means to be... Like, to have power. And not just power in like a general sense of the word that I think Shakespeare was doing Lear in, but like, in a very real sense of the word and like real power. blinding one person. You've it's and that's where like the um Tamarasu character I think is really profound is that it's he's taken it from Lady Sue represents like a family. Lady And also like an emotional idea of right, what but, you want. But she represents like, like a, a religious idea. Right, exactly. But she represents a bigger idea. Which is a bigger Conversation. Tamarasu represents a person. You literally blinded me. No. You are. You have to confront that idea with whatever larger ideals he originally went into dividing his country up for. And I think Kurosawa does that shit better than anybody. And that's where Ran is just amazing. And that's where like Throne of Blood is amazing. And I think if Kajimusha has a flaw, it's that it doesn't. Have those same doesn't have that same weight to it. You know what I mean? It doesn't have that rannish kind of like eternal um, invention of the human type or analysis of that human weight weight to it. Yeah. It's just a cool samurai movie, and it's like Seven Samurai maybe in that way too. Seven Samurai is just literally the coolest movie ever made. It's just the most fucking kick-ass movie ever. And Quentin Tarantino can try to make movies that are just like that well, forever. What somebody always says fail. is like the fact that Seven Samurai is too much of a hopeful ending compared to like the actual death of Kurosawa. Which sure. I kind of agree with. Like Kurosawa works his best when he doesn't give you that. Kurosawa works his best when he's like digging deep into the Leviathan. Yeah, you do love Thomas Hobbes. 
Do you love Hobbs? Are you a Hobbs guy? I'm a Hobbs guy. Yeah. Okay. okay. I don't love his ideas. I just think he's set them the best. Mm. I feel if, like we've also had lots of bar conversations about <laughs> Leviathan. If you're a Descartes guy, you can tweet us <laughs> at Film Pivotal. <laughs> or if you're a David Hume guy, you can send us a weirdly subject line email to pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com or you can go to pivotalfilm.com and see a list of the movies on our Pivotal Film list. I haven't updated the website in a long time again. Uh, I'm sorry. It's my my flaw. It also doesn't matter. Kurosawa might come back. When you bring him back, he might make a movie about me not updating the website. Oh, he's going to be too busy. <laughs> he's going to be too busy fucking some some sweet Okay, and 20, <laughs> 21 ladies. Um... And men, uh, whatever know. he wants. Kurosawa, I just want you back. Well, we do, we do want him back. We miss you. We miss you. Um, yeah, next week we have a, a slate, a, a crazy slate of new movies to do, and uh, a crazy slate. It's kind of weird. Yet? It's different. I don't think it's that great. I mean, no, it's fine. It's it's basically the best thing we could do to in this period of time. I feel like we don't do many. We don't. Mel Gibson has made a lot of movies, and we haven't talked about any of them. We're doing Boss Level, by the way. And what's the other one? Doing Boss Level and Coming to America. Oh, yeah, that's going to be bad. I don't think... I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's not bad. I wouldn't be surprised if it's also sad, because I just don't... Th- I'm not sure Arsenio and Eddie Murphy have the... Uh, but it's Craig Brewer, so that's why I'm hopeful. No. I'm just, they're doing some of the same stuff again, so when they go to, like, the, uh, I mean, it won't be as bad as the, the week afterwards. When they go to the barbershop, and they're doing those same guys again, I don't know, the clip that they showed is like, oh, yeah, that's very clearly just old Eddie Murphy in our studio. But hopefully we're wrong. That would be nice. That would be nice. I love coming to America. And if we are wrong, then you can laugh at us, and you can drink a beer. And let yourself! That's what you meant, right? I didn't hit the note. I didn't hit it. Damn it! Watch a movie. We'll talk to you next week.